any of these external effects, like the fact that mining is good for attaching to an energy infrastructure, the fact that anything is useful as a result of Bitcoin comes from the fact that Bitcoin is nothing interesting. It's just contained value. That's it. That's all things flow from that. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and I am absolutely buzzing. My team, Raoul Bedford, we won 7-1 at the weekend, and we've gone top of the league. I don't want to always talk about football at the start of the show, but honestly, so proud of this. It was an amazing weekend, an amazing result, and hopefully that's where we will be in the league at the end of the season. And for today's show, I've got my buddy, Junseth, back. We've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Now, this conversation was originally based on something John Seth said to me when he said there is nothing interesting about Bitcoin and that being a good thing. Okay, this is obviously a bit of a troll, but there is some logic to this in that Bitcoin focuses on doing the simple things right, like protecting your money, while all this exotic DeFi stuff creates so much individual and general market risk. But Junseth is good on so many topics, so as well as discussing this simplicity of Bitcoin and this exotic DeFi stuff, we also get into long-term capital management, decentralization, and who really needs Bitcoin, as well as this DeFi market meltdown. I know you're going to love this show, but if you've got any questions, you want to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and I will get back to you. Okay, before we jump into the show, I do have a message from my show sponsors. I'm pleased to welcome new sponsor Ledin to the podcast. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without ever selling their Bitcoin. And with recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserve attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. But not only are Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they are pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference along with Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to have the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. There's going to be a surfing simulator, and it's going to be loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They are bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin in to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and mining to lightning. You do not want to miss out on the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's going to be a badass event. I'm going to be there. I cannot wait to go. I cannot wait to see you all there. Now, Swan is offering a massive 20% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER. That's P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N com and use the code Peter. Next up today, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. 
Ledger has recently announced the launch of their new Nano S Plus, and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And listen, I have been a customer of Ledger since early 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to BitCasino. .io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And remember, please gamble responsibly. So what, t- what price was Bitcoin? <laughs> what price was Bitcoin at last time I was here? It was like 42,000, dude. <laughs> 42 k Something like that. Oh, well, that's not bad. We've only cut in half then. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's more to go. I want to go. We could uh, we could be you know 10k or 5k. Who knows? Well, it's funny when people start making the calls because you get to a point where you think, okay, this kind of like I never thought we were going to 20k again. And then we started getting near, and I was like, well, we're going to dip under just to fuck with the people who set their stops at like 19 or or the people who like, oh, I'm not going to say 19, so I said at like 18 and a half. We everyone there was wiped out, but it feels like all the bad news has happened That's that we I've, think will happen. I've been wondering if. Bitcoin has been, the price has been driven down largely because of uh, a lot of these bankruptcies and these leveraged loans that people had out and sort of the failures of all, you know, uh, Celsius Network, uh, Three Arrows Capital, who else? Luna. Luna Luna was a big one. Voyager. Voyager. (laughs) They're stacking. I'm forgetting them. (coughs) Sorry. Quite the voyage. I just had a look. We were at 47,700 last time. 47,700. Yep. Oh, wow. A little more than half. So about 60%. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of money to lose. I mean, this is the thing. Uh, this is welcome. To, I just want to. I'm going to look at right into the camera. Uh, welcome to crypto winter. Uh, if this is your first cycle, I'm sorry that you're poor again. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's a funny thing, though. Like, you could be uh, you could be far in a far better position, far wealthier than you were uh, prior to the crypto uh-huh. uh, boom happening. But the ride up and down makes you feel poor. Yeah. Well, I think you anchor yourself at the new high, right? So, so like if you got to thirty million, Jesus, not, yeah. Can we can, can we go realistic numbers? Let's okay, fifty or sixty million. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but even <laughs> that's your new anchor, and now you're worth like five. <laughs> but even some people like who have never never had much money in their life might have got to like a hundred thousand or yeah. one hundred fifty thousand. I thought, holy crap, I can buy a house. Or- so I go I go to YouTube and I type in uh, like Celsius or Luna or Voyager and then uh, the words lost everything. And I, I go through the videos and I just watch them as people cry. And the numbers they're talking about, you're right. They're like, I lost $8,000 or I lost $30,000. That was everything that I had. And like, I genuinely kind of feel bad, but I also like do enjoy the schadenfreude of all of this because they've been, I, f- I feel like there could be no, there's there's nothing else that people could have done. We, we Bitcoiners in particular, Bitcoin maxis have been warning people that this is what happens. 
these these coins, these institutions, everything around crypto, when crypto crashes, fails always. And you know, if you look at the first episode when we were in California, mm-hmm. where I had my uh, VR goggles on because we were in the metaverse, one of the things I talked about. By the was, way, do you know that's in? Was it top twenty? Of our shows, yeah, I think yeah. it's top 20. Well, so, people it, it, like to see my tits. Yeah. No, ignore <laughs> ignore um, YouTube, because those numbers are all over the place. Just podcast listens, that's uh, that's in the top 20 shows ever made, out of you know, 400 or 540 shows. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. That's People like the, the double Ds. Uh, <laughs> no, because they're just listening, remember? Oh, really? Yeah, there's no oh. video with those guys. No, poor them. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, one of the things that I, I remember uh, we talked about was was DeFi. Yeah. And I, I said then that one of the things that, that is very likely to happen is the depegging. And voila, we have now seen it with Luna. Uh, Luna has depegged and uh, it crashed that market. And then a lot of the DeFi protocols have followed it. Um, most of which I'm not really, I don't pay a lot of attention to the DeFi stuff. But like the big institutional collapses have been really interesting to me that surround DeFi. And the reason I find DeFi really de- a little uninteresting is because most of the people that got rich in DeFi started out real poor. So they got they, they came in poor, they got rich, and then they got poor again. And like to me, like I think that's what distinguishes a lot of these crypto crashes from like Madoff, for example. Yeah, although arguably, uh, depending how Celsius kind of unwraps, uh, the people involved in that could face uh, similar consequences to Bernie Madoff. Yes, but it doesn't return the money to the people that lost it. No, no. I'm amazed this time at the blatantness of the Ponzi's. And the other thing that kind of surprises me is how these Ponzi's, and they they really are just Ponzi's, how these Ponzi's found this new way of earning money through leverage which is ridiculous. <laughs> if you want your Ponzi to unfold faster, it seems like leverage is a really good way to go about that. Well, let's go into that. Uh, because a Ponzi scheme is defined... Actually, Danny, get the actual definition mm-hmm. up so I don't screw it up. I mean, I know what it is, but we should... Uh, thank you. I think Is it Charles Ponzi was a guy? Charles Ponzi. That was his name? Yeah, and they were called uh, Peter to Paul schemes before him. He just happened to popularize uh, the name. So a Ponzi scheme is a form of fraud which... Belief in the success of a non-existent enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns to the first investors from money invested by later investors. Yeah. Bitcoin. So, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, anything could be described as a Ponzi. And that, that's, but in that structure, what, what we're saying, what Bernie Madoff did was he would raise new funds. Yeah. He would claim that he were hitting these unbelievable returns every year, even in the downturn. There were market. paper returns. He would literally just give them paper. And he would, and he would, you know, when people uh, redeemed, he would pay them back. With, now, with the caveat that they could never come back. Oh, was that the rule? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was how he did it. it was, okay, you, you can pull your money out, but you can never invest again. Ah. Uh, Not with me. I mean, the consequences of what happened with uh, Bernie Madoff is, have you seen the film? Yeah. Because I, I, I didn't know. I, I, a guy from my school who I, I was in a play with in, uh, in college was in that film. Was was right? I, I believe was one of the kids, Bernie's kids in the movie. Because I, I didn't realize one killed himself and the other died from cancer shortly oh, afterwards. Yeah. I mean, that's devastating what happened. But the multiple people killed themselves. I mean, it, it was devastating. And that's the, the reality of these things that we sh- should understand. The, the well, it's, it's, the, it's the distance of the fall, I think, that really like gets people into these states. Like if you, if you go from having a billion dollars to nothing, you know, it's a lot different than 30,000 to nothing. You know, that's an empire state building like fall. 
you're jumping mm. off the top of that. But I wonder if something like Celsius, if we're saying a Ponzi is you know, paying off the original investors with new investors, and there's no actual, they weren't actually making trades, at, uh, Bernie wasn't actually making trades. But I wonder if Celsius is slightly different in that I'm not obviously making an excuse because uh, I always thought Mershinsky was a lying piece of shit. And oh, I've uh, heard so many stories. I just, yeah, I've just got stories about him, but um, <laughs> but I wonder if it's slightly different in that they were able to generate returns to begin with. They for, they they were then unable to generate returns. I know they lost a bunch in a DeFi hack, and then they were just trying to trade their way out of it. Well, that's how I mean. That's how a lot of Ponzi's start, right? Yeah. Uh, so many Ponzi's start with this problem where you you make. I mean, th- this is this is why, like, you know, back to Bitcoin Uncensored. One of the things that I'm always fascinated by is. Um, is the notion is, is the idea that markets are efficient, which in Bitcoin is not popular. Uh, Bitcoin Tina, a friend of mine, and others tell me I'm an idiot for thinking that markets are efficient. But the principles around market efficiency lend to this worldview that says that when people are giving you money for holding something or giving you money for anything, there is risk associated with that. And I think the companies that are involved in this. They they are they themselves don't believe this, right? So they believe that there's magical internet money somewhere and they'll go and they'll lend it to some place. And everyone accepts the fact that they're getting nine, ten, twenty percent. I mean, what Novogratz said that it was basically, you know, I, I think Novogratz and, and his whole cadre were describing Luna as one of the least risky investments. I mean, there's a video of Mark Cuban saying that. I think about Voyager, uh, where he says that Voyager is one of the you know, it's it crypto, nothing's nothing's riskless, but this is about as close to riskless as you can get. Hmm. Which is insane because this is like three months before they go. You know, it's it's not that this is a hard thing to predict. Like as everything is going up in, you know, crypto summer, I don't know what we call it, <laughs> the, the bull market, as everything is going up, there's this mentality that percolates the person, which says that. You know, as it goes up, it can never come down. I, I, you don't remember. It's it's like it's sort of like when you're sick, and you just never remember what it's like to be better, even though you've been sick for like one week. That's how that's how this works psychologically, and I see it all the time. It, you know, it starts going up. It goes from twenty to thirty, and you're like, okay, we're going, we're going to a million, and then it goes right back down to twenty. You're like, it's going to five. It's going to mm-hmm. five. The human psychology is really interesting, and we are willing to forego the notion of risk in markets that feel like. We can't lose. And we are unwilling to accept the consequences of risk in markets that go the opposite direction. And it's really interesting to me because I've seen this now, I don't know, seven or eight times in in, in Bitcoin. I don't know how many pumps we've had, but it's been a lot in my uh, Bitcoin lifetime. And, and every single time I see people do the same exact stuff take out too much leverage. Uh, and, and, and by the way, too much leverage this time is, is mind-blowingly small because we're like, nobody thought, I mean, even, even in my own portfolios, I was like thinking about it. I was, I, I had estimated that at most we'd have a 50 or, you know, 30 to 50% drawdown. And when it drew down like 60% or 80% or, you know, 300%, whatever the, whatever the hell the drawdown is, like 60,000 to, to 20,000. It blew my mind. Well, getting hit by Luna, followed by yeah. Three Arrows, followed by Celsius and Voyager, that's a lot of hits to take. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of selling pressure. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I'm surprised it didn't go further because... Well, it could. I mean, there's more There's more loans outstanding. I don't think people have considered the miners. Like, the miners have loans outstanding. 
there's uh, there's all sorts of companies, and there's there's these uh, there's margin calls that are yet to come in. I, who knows? Maybe we'll never get there. Maybe we won't go low enough. But I think a lot of these traders know where these levels are, and they love the idea of trading down to them. Mm. If they're whales and they can push the market down, I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't. I, I don't see why they wouldn't try because these margin calls drive the price down, and they allow people to get Bitcoin at great prices. If you think Bitcoin's going somewhere. <laughs> And if they're shorting it as well, if they're yeah, if they're shorting it, that, that too. Like the people that have a lot of Bitcoin and can and can push markets up and down, and libertarians like to call these people that you know control markets and whatnot. That's that's ridiculous. These are just liquidity providers. They're big liquidity holes, which is why it's hard to like compete in markets because they they exist. These people can make bets on the market that they know they're going to take that they're going to you know have a high chance of of, of making happen, and that's just something that like it's really hard to compete with as an individual. It's amazing how much leverage risk people take. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. And, peop and people who know better, I mean, I've leverage traded back in 2017, 18, my first time trading. So it seems like, what do you mean I can access 10 times my capital? I mean, what do you mean when it goes up every dollar, I go up $10? And when Bitcoin goes up 1000 They I don't explain it to you either. You're just kind of like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> this is magic. Yeah. Uh, and then ever since then, I've made one leverage trade. But the only leverage trade I made was, uh, was uh, like a bank loan against Bitcoin, which uh, up until a couple of weeks ago was in, in the good. Now it's slightly under. But I've paid off the majority of the loan, so it doesn't really matter. But the idea being that kind of leverage, I think, is okay when you can afford the loan, you've got an income. Well, the problem, the problem this time is that people thought they could afford loans, right? They thought they could because they estimated that Bitcoin would go down 5%, 10%. 20%. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't, what's the math? Is it 80% down? 70% down? I think it's about 70% at the moment. Is 70%? Go to percentagecalculator.net. Percentage <laughs> One sec. The 60, so, so the actual 60 minus is, 20 divided by 20. So the <laughs> very bottom so far, it's 74%. At the moment, it's like 70. 74%. Well, that's probably an increase on the previous bear market. Like yeah. they, it's normally 80 plus, isn't it? But yeah. but the thing is, I mean, I, I, think, I think people really were bent on because we stuck at 60 it was a different kind of market than all the other markets that we've had in bitcoin it stuck there and it dropped dramatically like it, it just it, after so long sitting at you know 50s 40s you know somewhere up there like it really felt like it was going to trade in a band everyone was telling me this and it felt like that but it didn't you know and i think a lot of people got caught with their pants down and the defi stuff was just a very very uh sort of obvious leading indicator that this was all coming. Let me ask you, because this is something I've thought about before. I've expressed thoughts. People don't agree. But uh, in a future world, I don't know whether it's a decade away, two decades, three decades away, but I, I don't see a world where everything is decentralized. I just don't. I think certain things are better centralized because you have to have people making decisions and therefore um, you have to have governance processes. And I think some things will be decentralized. Something like a stable coin, I find it hard well, I found it hard to find a truly decentralized stablecoin that I don't think will depeg. Now, I know I know centralized ones can be, but a fully transparent, fully backed centralized stablecoin should hold a peg if yeah. it was transparent. Well, I mean, the, the the humor of this market is is that Tether is the one uh, coin that has remained uh, holding its peg pretty closely even in spite of all the criticism that it's received from Fudsters, right? Like maybe Tether doesn't have its, uh, its backing. Who knows? I, I'm, not, I'm not auditing it. 
But it blows my mind that Tether is the one that seems to, <laughs> seems to have ironically survived this world where everyone's saying that Tether is definitely going down and Luna is the safest uh, security that's ever, you know, given you 20% returns. <laughs> it's absurd. And I think the other thing that's really interesting for me is like, if you look at the history of finance, you have all of these examples where people have done particularly like examples of leverage. A good example in the 90s that, you know, if you've been here long enough, you know about, but LTCM, long-term capital management, ironically named, had all of these what Russian- was What's that? I've never heard of it. You've never heard of no. long-term capital management? Okay, well, it was uh, it was a firm started by I think Fisher Black, you know, of the uh, Black Scholes formula and a few others, like lots of. There were they had two or three Nobel Prize winning. I think it was Fisher Black Nobel Prize winning economists start this company. The idea of it was they were going to do as much uh, basically arbitrage as they could. Arbitrage generally in the financial sense means riskless returns, right? So they're rare. They're really hard to find these opportunities. And when you do, you can make a lot of money. But what they were going to do is leverage the fuck out of their portfolio so that they could make money on arbitrage opportunities that were like quarters of a penny, you know, reducing spreads by tenths of a penny, hundreds of a penny. It was a sort of like the office space scheme. Mm -hmm. They did this because of their relationships and the people in the firm. They ran up. I don't remember what it was, but I think they had something like maybe 10 billion, three to 10 billion under management and had like $3 trillion in leverage. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what happened is they had, they'd set these up all of their, their trades in such a way as they, they would, if, if there were failures, they would cascade, right? If this failed, they were kind of like, um, uh, the, the, the financial equivalent of like a prop bet right? They had like 10 bets, all that as long as none of them broke down, but it's arbitrage. So they're riskless, right? And then one day, Russia wakes up, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin wakes up and he says, uh, you know, he, well, the Russian economy starts to fail. And he says, uh, those uh, bonds, how about we make good on them to Russians only, but not to foreigners. So that's a good Russian accent, right? That's pretty good. Uh, so they, they don't, they don't, they, they don't, they decide not to pay out uh, bond hold, I think it was bondholders that were not were not national. They were not in Russia. All, so all of a sudden, like all of these Russian bets that they have, which are part of this like cascading portfolio, aren't going to get paid. So LTCM goes into crisis. There's like three trillion dollars on the table in the '90s. This this collapse. This like has a potential to collapse the economy. the The Fed gets involved. Everyone gets involved. So this is the first time the Fed gets together. They meet with everybody and they say, okay, banks, like we're fucked. The whole economy is about to go. So we need, we need someone to like back LTCM and all of the banks like basically agree to do this except one, Bear Stearns. Huh. Irony. Irony. It's not ironic. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of, there's Isn't a lot it? of people who strongly believe that uh, the, the, the failure of Bear Stearns later was revenge uh, for this. Right. So who, Bear Stearns. Who are we going to bail out? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Bear Stearns uh, in LTCM refuses basically to like help with this. And the other banks all get in and basically do this first like sort of bailout. Um, LTCM attempts to sell to everybody. They attempt to sell to Warren Buffett. I think Warren Buffett rejects them at the price they asked for because they, they really didn't. Like he, I, I believe he sent them, I think it was through fax machines because again, the 90s. Uh, I think he offered them like a, a fraction of the amount that they, they thought they were worth. And they're like, oh, we can hold out. No biggie. 
So they didn't sell to him early on, and that would have probably been enough because he could have like weathered the storm. Oh, is this Leon Black? Leon Black? You said he didn't sell to Leon. No, 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 to uh, Warren Buffett. Oh, yeah. I thought you said Leon. No, no, uh, to Warren Buffett. So like Warren Buffett had, I, th- I believe he offered a certain amount. So like what happened, uh, like a fraction of what they, they really thought they were worth and they, they rejected it and then no one else wanted to buy them. So they got like basically liquidated. And what's interesting is if you analyze their bets over time, if it had been able to be held, they would have been wildly, wildly wealthy. Hmm. These, these bets were all great. You found it, Danny? I mean, I found the story, yeah. Do you want me to pull it up? Yeah, yeah. put it up. Let's have a look. Uh, <laughs> wildly su- uh, LCTM was wildly successful from 1994 to 1998, attracting oh, yeah. more than 1 billion of investor capital with a promise of arbitrage strategy. But yeah, yeah. However, LTCM's highly leveraged trading strategies failed to pan out and it suffered monumental losses. Monumental. Monumental. The reverberations felt across the financial landscape. Ultimately, the U.S. government had to step in and range a bailout. Uh, keep going. Don't worry about the business model. Uh, John Merriweather. Yeah. The demise. When okay, when Russia defaulted on its debt in August 1998, LTCM was holding a significant position in Russian government bonds. Bonds. Uh, high leverage nature, coupled with a financial crisis in Russia, led to the hedge fund to sustain massive losses and be in danger of default in its own loans. This made it difficult for LCTM to cut its losses in fixed positions. Uh, held a huge, totaling roughly 5% of the total <coughs> global fixed income market. Uh-huh. Jesus. When losses approached $4 billion, the federal government of the United States feared the imminent collapse of LCTM would precipitate a large financial crisis and orchestrated a bailout to calm the markets. A $3.65 billion loan was created, which enabled LCTM to survive the market volatility and liquidate an orderly manner in year early 2000. What happened to the... I mean, there was no crime there. They were just... No, there's no crime. I mean, the, the real crime is the banks that lent to them. If there was a crime, I mean, it was they used their connections basically, and these banks bypassed their internal mechanisms, thinking like these guys have Nobel prizes, like you know, it's no problem. And secretly, what they were doing is going from bank to bank, basically, and getting as. I mean, this is it's the same Three thing. Three errors. Yeah, they were going from bank to bank and secretly getting leverage from them, and all of the banks were extending more leverage than they would have normally like given on any in any given day. And I, I if I if I recall. Bear Stearns was the only bank that was exercising prudence, which is why they were like, fuck that, you know, at the end of all of this. <clears throat> because it was a crisis caused by, by imprudence in the market and, uh, and, and basically banks not abiding by their normal standards and regulations because they, they decided that these oracles were going to definitely make good on their returns, that they, there's nothing that these people could do that wouldn't be uh, it's astoundingly genius and that they, they, it's arbitrage. So it's fucking riskless, right? So it's riskless until, and, and this, is, this is the thing that happens in financial markets. No one seems to realize that there are no rules. They think that the rules of the financial markets exist and that we know how they operate, but we don't realize that the rules can change at any moment and anyone can change them, anyone with power. So in this case, Putin does something unprecedented. He stands up and he goes, oh, we're not paying foreign debt. Which no one had ever done before. Well, uh, do you know what? We just did it to him. Well, that's, that's I mean, yeah, right? <laughs> we, we took a lot of their money away. Um, but yeah, like it, it's, but they, they're not holding bonds. Like we didn't cancel their bonds, right? The treasuries. Yeah. Oh. Um, I'm, not, I'm not super familiar with like what we're Hold doing on, to Russia on, right now. On treasuries bonds. Yeah. Yeah. So we I did. imagine. Yeah. It's like 60 billion of treasuries. 
Yeah. So we've uh, we've okay. We've farted on them now. Yeah. But uh, but I'll yeah. Take the, that. The, in 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 this case, they you know they were basically willing to default on global bonds for anybody, even like anyone that was holding bonds outside of, of Russia. And no one had seen anything like that before. But you say there's no rules. There's <laughs> rules for the little guy. There's L- no rules. There's rules for the little guy. There's rules for the little guy sometimes. I mean, there, there's rules until like there's the rules are constructed and deconstructed by those who have power. So I guess the little guy has no power, so he has to abide by the rules. But he gets fucked when... I mean, I've talked about it on the show so often, but in The Big Short, the yeah, brilliant film, the, the, the thing that always leaves me is the end, where you see the family packing up their car because they've lost their house. Yeah. You know, they got screwed. Probably, they were, I, I can't remember. How many people lost their home in 2008 financial crisis, Danny? In the US, it was, it, it was, a num- it was like a seven-figure number. I don't know if it's one, two million, but like a lot of people lost their homes. And these are hardworking people, went to work. They played by the rules, right? They went to work. They did their job. They paid their mortgage. Boom, financial crisis because of stupid, irresponsible products that were created, leverage in the market, rehypothecation. And when it all unwinds, yeah, a couple of big banks fail. Nobody goes to jail. Everyone loses their job. Everyone loses their job. Yeah. And it's the ability that people can risk the entire, I mean, the entire uh, financial markets, not just the country, but the world, just for greed, just to make about 10 million people. 10 million. 10 million. Mm -hmm. Can you read? what was it saying? It says about 10 million, million Americans lost their homes during the financial crisis or were displaced. But I wonder uh, the amount of people actually involved in the decision making that led to the creation of these products. You know, you might be talking about a few thousand people. What, what are the products you're talking about that caused this? What do you think caused this? Well, I mean, if you want to talk about what caused it, you can, you can, you can go back to different points in history. You can go back to Clinton creating, changing the rules of the housing game because they wanted to put more people into homes. So they changed it, the, what was the borrowing rate? The 20, they got rid of the 20% rate. I can't remember the details because it was a long time ago. Uh, was it Glass-Steagall they repealed yeah. or something? So they repealed Glass-Steagall. Remind me, is that the responsibility of the banks? I can't remember. So I know, like, I haven't looked at this for a long time, but I know under the Clinton administration they didn't want more people in homes, so they made it... So they made it easier for banks to provide loans, and therefore they repealed Glass-Steagall or something. Now, anyone listening, if I've got that wrong, don't call me a dumbass. There's a lot to remember, and I can't. But there was something under the Clinton administration that made the banks more responsible. So you can go back as far as that. There's probably things you can go back to before that. But that that's, that's the start of the creation of products and contagion. That's the start of the creation of risks within the banks. So, so I, t- I tend to think most risk in the financial sector is much like LTCM cascading risk. Yes. There's there's these levels of risk that we have. There's like level one, level two, level three. And if any of these cards are pulled out, all of a sudden, it's particularly when it comes to leverage, all of a sudden the whole card castle that you've built collapses, right? And I mean, there's there's a I think I think a lot of this even you can go back even further to the two income households where people have in a in a world where both the man and the woman in the house work. You end up with like people going out and overextending themselves because they're buying things like homes based on two incomes. It's actually uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren wrote a book called The Two Income Gap, which is literally about this specific problem. And it's basically saying that people like it used to be that let's say that you had a house, you know, you had to pay a mortgage, whatever. Uh, you you 
you get fired from your job. Well, your wife would go and be a secretary for six months as you like looked for a job and then you'd go find a job. And during that time you could pay the mortgage, right? Well, in a world where both people work, they're both maximally employed, they're both making good money. What do you do when you're making, let's say you're both bringing in $5,000 a week or every two weeks. So $10,000, $20,000 a month. You're going to go buy a home that's, you know, a million dollars, maybe 2 million, let's say $2 million. And you're not saving a lot. You're going to be taking all of your money pretty much every month, putting it towards a mortgage, maybe saving a few thousand. But in the end, when it comes down to it and the economy turns and you both lose your jobs, you might have eight months of mortgage money saved. And in a bad economy, you might not be able to get a job that pays anywhere near what you had. So like this is this is like all of these things. That was one of them. And then in addition to that, you're right, uh, the 90s, like changes in mortgage stuff and Come like on. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How many people do you think have got eight months breathing room? Oh, very few, but if very few, yeah, but very I'm being few. very generous. I'm, very trying, generous. I'm trying to be very generous. I know people who haven't got two months of breathing room. It, yeah. Well, as an adult, it's like, it's really interesting because when I was a kid, I remember thinking to myself, if I had a million bucks, I'd buy an airplane, you know, <laughs> if I had a million bucks, I'd, you know, just, you know, something I'd have the biggest house you've ever seen. And I was an adult. Like, I don't know how people who are responsible can survive on any of these amounts. I, 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 it blows my mind that because the expenses that come with things like a million dollar mortgage or, you know, anything like that, the, 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 the impending expenses are things that you would never have considered as a kid. You know, a million dollar mortgage is what, $15,000 a month, something like that. No, no, no. no. 10,000 a month? No, I, I would have thought. I mean, it depends It depends on the rates you get in now. If you go back a year when you could get 2% interest rates, I would have thought a million would be, what, 4,000 a month? Something like that. But like, but now it's like 4.5%. Well, for some people, so, it's Okay, 8,000, 8,000. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for most Americans, like, that means that, like, let's say it's 8,000 a month, yeah. right? Okay. So you're still talking, what, $96,000 a year that you have to put towards your house? Like most people don't think about the fact that they have to, like that, that's income that has to come in. You have a million dollars, like you can do that for 10 years. You got, but that's without eating or anything else. So like you have to be making a significant income to like be able to afford these things. And I think what's really interesting is like in, in places like the housing market and whatnot, like you have these, you really do have these cascading failures where people believe that, that, and it's, again, it's the same as a crypto market. Now people believe that that will always be the state of the state of things. And I think people don't realize that like literally the state of nature is to be impoverished. You come into this world naked, you have nothing, nothing with, with you. And if you, if you, you know, the state of nature is to like go into the forest and grow potatoes and just, you know, not have money and have nothing. That's a state of nature. And, and nature wants to bring you back there. And what people do is, you know, I see this in crypto all the time. Like, I really deserved this money. I put money into Luna and I made $4 million and now I'm poor and I just can't believe it. I've lost everything. Like, you didn't, nobody I know has, no one I've ever seen get rich deserved their wealth. They, they work really hard. They set up mechanisms. They like, they, they preserve it. They do, they make a lot of really good decisions, but you are one absolutely insane decision and not even necessarily knowing it's insane one decision away from complete impoverishment dude you're, you're not just one decision away you, you you're one personal decision or you're one decision by somebody else away from yeah that. but that this is like if yeah. you put your money into wells fargo and you have i don't know 100 million dollars in one bank account there and wells fargo collapses tomorrow 
what the, the FDIC has you insured to what two fifty or something like that. I'm sure you can buy like additional insurance, but maybe you know you got rich, you know, not knowing how those products work. So you you haven't. So they give you two hundred fifty k back. You made a hundred million. They give you two hundred fifty thousand. Like you don't. That isn't your decision. But that's what I'm saying is like the state of nature is that the, there's like the entire world is in constant decay. And everything is turning. It's, it's sort of like this uh, very like sort of Buddhist concept, right? Where Wells Fargo at some point is going to fail. We don't know when. It might be 100 years from now. But you put your money in there. You're putting your money in a hot potato. Everything, every one of us is putting our money into hot potatoes. And some hot potatoes just kind of get cooked faster. Luna is a great example. So like it's very difficult. That's actually what I like about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is the ability for the first time to actually like use the principles of the universe, entropy, the decay of the universe is the thing that guards my money. And the decay of the universe is the thing that we use to, to develop more Bitcoins, right? And that's literally what, what's amazing about Bitcoin is it acknowledges this fact that the decay is, in fact, like we are, the state of nature is to be impoverished. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you have your Bitcoin on a ledger, you can still get it back later. If you hold it, it's, it, it's a dangerous thing to do. But that's, a, I think that's also the case is like, not to ramble too much, but like, <laughs> that's what, that's what we got you here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm rambly, but uh, but the idea, the idea that uh, like in terms of compensation for risk. So like when you put your money into a bank, you kind of assume it's going to be there. Well, that's not always the case. Like Ukraine saw huge amounts of money lost back in what the 80s and the 90s. Uh, banks failed in America in the 30s. We had huge bank failures. And again, in the 2000s, well, in the 2000s, the saving grace was, in fact, the, ba- the, the insurance backing the banks, whether it was SIPC or FDIC, the insurance backing the banks was their saving grace. Not if you were in Cyprus. Well, except in Cyprus, yeah, where they, they haircut everybody. And if you were rich, you were allowed to get out of Cyprus, right? There were a lot of people that were wealthy that moved their money. Um, so, you know, people, people don't understand, and I don't know that they can the risks that they're taking on when they do anything, when they like buy stocks or when they put their money into Celsius or when they put their money into, you know, a hedge fund or a VC firm, or when they take a huge amount of unilateral risk and put all of their money into like new startups as a VC, you know, if they themselves want to be the VC, people don't seem to understand the risk that they're taking on. And it's amazing to me because every single time in the crypto cycle, we see the exact same outcomes constantly. Well, so this is an interesting thing. We've got an interview with David Morris next week from Coindesk. And he's written an article about how the similarities between what's happening over these last few weeks in the crypto market with what happened in 2008, from which Bitcoin was born. Yeah. And it's got me in this kind of headspace where I'm thinking about whether it's a centralized or a decentralized system, it kind of doesn't matter because it can still happen because... We still have humans taking risk. We still have humans taking out leverage. Well, the corruption is different. Like in, in a centralized system, it's the people who are corrupt often. But I think, I think that Bitcoiners overestimate the amount of effect that these external institutions have on an economy. Interest rates, for example, are basically set by the market. I don't care what the Fed says. You know, the market really does basically choose and control interest rates. The Fed has some control over certain things, you know, bank rates and whatnot. Uh, but like for the most part, the, the whole market kind of adjusts. People adjust their like, you know, their leverage and, you know, housing mortgages go up. When mortgages, when, when the mortgage price goes up, housing prices come down. The whole market just kind of adjusts. It's 
this giant balancing mechanism. It really is. So Bitcoiners tend to, I think, overestimate the amount of inefficiency provided by corruption in the system. That's always been the case. And I think they underestimate the level of danger that individuals with no regulations can cause to the system. And maybe ultimately, like the no regulation world is a better world. And uh, we root that out somehow by, I don't know, maybe mathematical mechanisms. But to your point earlier, you, you said that you don't see a future where like the whole world is decentralized in 30 or 40 years. Well, yeah, just because it's decentralized doesn't make it good. There's only one thing that, and, and well, two things in history that we figured out how to maybe decentralize in a cryptographic way or a, a, a computer way. One might be torrents, right? Pretty decentralized way to do file sharing. The other is money. It, wo- it just works. It works. Just works. We're like, it could fail, but like it works pretty well. Yeah. The other is money. And money apparently works really well decentralized. It doesn't work yet. Like we're seeing a lot of like, I don't think it's good when Bitcoin drops 50% as, as a pitch for money. It's just not. But I think that like this will be money someday. It's good for that use. It's a good ledger. It's used by some people as money, you know drug dealers uh, and hookers. <laughs> but no, like it is, it is, it is some kind of money. We know that it's like, it's value at the very least it's contained value. And we've, so we've figured out how to decentralize this thing, but it doesn't mean that everything has to be decentralized or that decentralization is better ever. It doesn't make like decentralization isn't a good simply because we can do it. And that's, you know, that's, that's the problem I think is everyone has looked at Bitcoin and, and decided that because Bitcoin removes the corruption from the people, the, the people that hold and, and control the system, that somehow Bitcoin and the decentralization of everything else will do exactly the same. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's created this, this, yeah, this ability that someone came out with this idea in 2008 as a white paper and then delivered a protocol in 2009 and 13 years later it's still here and at some point it was worth over a trillion dollars and millions of people own it and can move it around the world instantly on the lightning network or within an hour on on the base chain that the fact that it's delivered and survived you know i think it's given people a lot of hope when i said to you earlier we had um, a guy in to discuss uh, a progressive a progressive case for bitcoin and the great thing about bitcoin being apolitical is it doesn't matter where you are left right middle you have to abide by the same set of rules, and it just works. And I think what that's done is, it, with that, people have identified other things which are corrupt and broken, and think, oh, perhaps, perhaps we can decentralize that. I just don't see it working in that way. Well, I think I think that the problem for me is that a large number of people have this understanding of where corruption is, and they misidentify things all the time. Like a good example right now. Um, there's an accusation by the conservative right that Joel Biden sold our strategic petroleum reserves to China. And everyone's up in arms about this. Very, very, very angry. Well, you can go look at how the strategic petroleum reserves are always dealt with. Uh, oil's a commodity. It's fungible. It's a global market. This, by statute, this, the SPR, the strategic petroleum reserves, the SPR has to be sold to the highest bidder by statute. And the highest bidder was China. <laughs> so, like, it's not a scandal. Anybody who would have, you know. So, the, the entire world right now is looking at that and screaming about corruption. And no one goes to the source document and finds out why it was done this way. And I find that to be the case with, like, most forms of corruption that people are obsessed with. Well, hold on a second. Just give me a second on that. I, 
I don't understand the strategic petroleum reserve. What what is that? How does it work? So uh, we have a national supply of petroleum. Uh, it's supposed to be released like in times of war if we need it or something. Trump filled it up uh, for very cheap during COVID. And now as gas prices are up, uh, Biden has been releasing it. Uh, the Biden administration has been releasing it in order to like, you know, solve some of the backwardation or contango problems, whatever, whatever the case. I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not a trader, hmm. but I think, I think backwardation is like what's been going on. So like they're, they're trying to basically fill the supply chain a little bit. And uh, if they can do that, then they can release, like it, it just relieves a little bit of the pressure. That's, that's the idea. So there's accusations that like this is a misuse of the SPR might be, but this, this big one, this like big accusation that like we sold the SPR to China, that we sold like big portions of it. It's just absurd. And that's, again, my big problem with corruption generally is the level of understanding that people have about corruption in the system is like zero. They have no idea where the corruption is. They're obsessed with the corruption in the system and they're wrong about it. Uh, the last year I've been hearing libertarians talking about how like, uh, Vanguard and BlackRock are the worst entities in the world because they own the most of X stock. And it just seems to me that like these people don't understand how, how the world is constructed. Like Vanguard and BlackRock own the most of these stocks because they have the most people putting money into them. And that's not owned by Vanguard and BlackRock. It's owned by the people that give the money for their ETFs. And so there's these like sources of corruption that I see people identify all the time. And they're just wrong about what like where the corruption is they're completely wrong and it's very frustrating so where where is it in the system that you think people should be focusing on well I, I think like politicians themselves can be very corrupt I think that like that worries me uh I don't I don't care that much about corruption I tend to think that like the markets root a lot of the cost of corruption uh, out of the system but like there's a very obvious spots so, like I think that like it's very corrupt for uh I, th I think it's corrupt when people who are in power can do things that people who are not in power can do explicitly by the rules. So for example, insider trading by congressmen in the United States, that, that seems to me to be very corrupt and it's explicitly legal. Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, but it's explicitly legal. She's a very good trader. Uh, yeah, she is a very good trader. <laughs> very good trader. Uh, but there's, there's, there's doesn't, I mean, I, I think that, that one, that one to me is crazy. I'm, I mean, I don't know I what the case it. is in the UK, but I'd be surprised if they're allowed, but, uh, here it's explicitly allowed. Yeah. It's explicitly allowed in it, Like it is allowed and, and the Congress is the only one that can change it. They have to vote on the bill themselves as to whether they are allowed or not allowed to do it. The turkeys have to vote for Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it does seem like the obvious thing to remove, one of the most obvious things to remove. So, so that kind of thing, to me, that seems like corruption, um, mainly because I, I think, I, like, again, I don't think that Nancy Pelosi making a lot of money really affects me. Uh, it could, I guess, but in, in theory, but it doesn't really affect me. Uh, it, does, it does kind of feel a little bit fuckered though, that she has this opportunity that's very obvious and clear that I don't have, you know, maybe they just make uh, insider trading legal for everybody. I don't know. <laughs> Anything on the UK? Uh, I've not seen that, but do you see this week that Nancy Pelosi bought a load of Nvidia stock before a big vote? Oh, she's really into Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not seeing anything on the UK. Yeah. 8 million. 8 yeah. million shares? Eight, eight, $8 million. $8 million of shares. There's, there's, there's entire ETFs or like people that are like tweeting what their, uh, what the trades are. That like they're, the Pelosi. Yeah, bot. yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I love that. I love that people are just following. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's like, again, technology a lot of times uproots corruption. So like if, if they have to disclose to us what they're buying, then, you know, I, I don't know that it matters at all because you can just buy it too. Yeah, it's like going back to all this contagion that we've had, maybe this is where 
the more hardcore maxis are right and maybe I haven't paid enough attention to them in terms of, you know, hold your private keys, uh, screw these companies that offer you know, leverage or interest on your loans, screw financial <laughs> services. I don't personally believe it, but, you know, they've been right on certain areas and maybe I, you know, I think, you know, because we take this very seriously. Like we really consider the things are, that we talk about and the influence it has. Maybe they were right, or maybe this shit just happens anyway. I, that's what I don't know. Well, okay. So, I mean, the thing is, the, the thing. Okay, this is why I think it's such an important thing to understand that mark. Like, I believe very strongly, markets are efficient. It leads you to a lot of principles that are very important. Like, for example, I believe very strongly that the best way to hold risk, to be compensated adequately for risk that you're holding, is to diversify away the risk the unilateral risk, right? I, I diversify it away. So like, I don't know if there's one taxi company and, and all of my money is in the taxi company, that's a lot of risk. But if there's 10 taxi companies, which one's going to win? I don't know. I'm going to buy matter. a bit of all of them. Yeah. And I'm, that means that I'm going to miss out on the biggest gains because I'm going to miss out on Uber. Uh, Uber's, you know, rise. Uh, but I'm going to get a little bit of it and save yourself from the biggest losses. And I'm going to save myself from yeah. the biggest losses. And humans are notoriously bad at remembering that they picked losses. Notoriously bad at it. And I think that's the thing with like Bitcoin is Bitcoin is highly volatile. I think the best you can do is either just hold it and just, you know, sit on it and say this is my investment. But the other thing you can do is is you could like volatility trade it like where you're just buying buying low, selling high, buying low, selling high. Buying buying low. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, right. you got that right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, buying low and selling high. You can you can do that. Like uh, it's you know. But what's low and volatility? What's high? Well, volatility trading allows you to do that essentially algorithmically. That I mean, Bitcoin's pretty good for like a velocity like strategy, and I I do think that that's you could you can get extra returns on like Vanguard. You know, like maybe the Vanguard or the Spies or something like Vanguard Total Market or the Spies. But your returns on something like that, doing that instead of nine percent per year, you're going to get like. 11% per year or 13%, maybe 20% in really good years, right? It's not huge. In Bitcoin and in crypto generally, particularly in DeFi, what was amazing to me is people were looking for these 50% returns, 80% returns, 200% returns. And like Bitcoin early on wasn't any different. It was the same thing. This is how people like Pirate at 40 got their start. They were promising these 1% returns per day and 15% returns per month. And Bitcoin was like, the Bitcoiners often, I remember like. Was that I, the thing Dan Mercado talked to us about? It, it was, I can't remember exactly what. Will you explain what that was? Pirate at 40? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was, it was one of, I mean, there was a lot of Ponzi's early on in Bitcoin, particularly dealing with miners. But Pirate at 40 was the most interesting. It was this guy named Trendon Shavers, released his own name. He was very public. And he seemed to be doing something legitimate. He was, he was running, he took investment. People gave him X number of Bitcoins, and nobody knew where he was getting the returns. It was speculated that the returns were coming from, you know, lending to like drug markets and stuff like that. And I think, I think ultimately, what I what I have come to conclude is he was probably lending to Mt. Gox. So the returns were coming from, you know, Mt. Gox covering liquidity and maybe some other nefarious things, but that was a large part of it. So. Trenton Shavers was returning these massive profits and he was doing it for months and months and this thing started to grow. He needed more liquidity because they needed more liquidity. And then all of a sudden, I think it was around like September, August, September of that year, 
he just doesn't pay out one day. And people wonder what the hell's going on because they know his name. They've met him. They've done steak dinners together. Uh, they've met him at conferences. He goes to conferences. Like he's, he's a public guy. So they, they, they're all very confused. And, uh, and he just doesn't pay out. So there's a, a number of like weird events that happen around this. Uh, Matthew and Wright, who's, I, I mean, not really in the community at this moment. I haven't seen him in years ever since this. Matthew and Wright, uh, who was actually the owner of Bitcoin Magazine at the time before they sold it to Tony Galipi. Matthew and Wright makes a bet with everybody that I think it was like by September 13th or something, Trendon will make a payout. And if he doesn't, I'll pay, I don't remember how much, $10,000 or it might have been 10,000 Bitcoin. It was big. You can actually find the spreadsheet online of all the people that, that registered to take this bet. He was like, Trendon's going to pay. And if he doesn't, I'll, you know, I'll give you this much. And if I don't pay, you can give me the scammer tag. So this was the way that we monitored ourselves early on in Bitcoin is in the, in the forums. If you fucked up, you got a scammer tag and nobody would deal with you, right? And you'd have to either remake an account and start basically fresh rebuilding reputation. So he, he commits himself to this. If I don't pay, you can give me a scammer tag. The date comes around. Trendon doesn't pay. Parrot at 40 doesn't pay. And Matt says to the community, fuck you. I'm not paying you. <laughs> I, uh, I was just doing this to show you all how gullible you are. You guys will fall for any scam. And he doesn't pay. And so they give him the scammer tag. He kind of exits the community. This leads to the collapse of the Bitcoin Magazine team at the time. So Bitcoin uh, Magazine's in trouble. Tony Galipi steps in. Tony Galipi buys it. And like here we are today, where I think Galipi has sold it now to like David and that team. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty sure it was Galipi. Yeah. And, and like all of this stuff, like these guys, it's it's a weird history that only a few people were around to kind of witness. And uh, and and yeah. So. That's we had early Ponzi's and Bitcoiners were looking for returns in excess of you know the normal market. So they would give money to cloud mining operations. They'd give money to Trendon Shavers. They what happened give, to Trendon? Uh, he went to jail. I think he went to uh, Texarkana, if I recall, uh, the the resort uh, jail of jails, federal prison. He was there for a number of months. He got out and immediately started trading shitcoins. Which, I mean, it's what's remarkable about Trendon is that if you look back on it, you know, again, classic Bitcoin story, he probably had 20,000, 15,000 Bitcoins to, his, to himself. If he did sit on his hands. Because Bitcoin, Bitcoin was worth nothing. You know, this was, is this was when Bitcoin was like a dollar, 80 cents, 70 cents, maybe less. It was cheap. It was really cheap. Maybe 10, 20,000 Bitcoin. And he does this thing. Oh, and, and so when he doesn't pay out, um, no one knows why. And, you know, it causes this like weird, you know, like every, like tons of people that were in his little thing, they, you know, he tries to pay them out. And that's when it turns into a Ponzi, right? He, he starts mm. paying them out. With, uh, with new entrants, it turns into a very classic kind of Ponzi, thinking that his, the person he's lent to, I believe, this is what he's told, you know, he said, he believes the person who he's lent the money to is going to return him the money eventually. So no biggie. Well, you know, he's never made whole. So his investors are never made whole. And he starts paying out some of them with like new investment funds of people that are like waiting. You found him. I mean, I found him. I can't find him on like what he's doing right now, but. He, he was trading shit coins like pretty quick after he got out. <laughs> I knew yeah. that. But you know, he had, a, he had a, he had a shit ton of coins. And if he, he lost basically everything when the government showed up and took everything from him and uh, he goes to jail and he spends a few years there. And if he had done, like, this has been the story of Bitcoin. If you did nothing, you got rich. 
And again, that goes back to like, you don't deserve this, but if you did nothing, you got rich. If you did something, you lost your coins. It's, a, it's, it's so kind true. of a bad message, actually, like in the grand scheme of things, when you think about like an economy, if you do nothing, you'll get rich. If you do something, then like you will give up wealth. Yeah, but that's not true because to, to get to that starting point, you've got to do something. You're 100% right. Like You've got to mine or you've got to go to work. You've got to expend energy. Absolutely. And, and to absolutely. But like it, it, it's a pretty minimal like a pretty minimal thing that, it, that anyone had to do in the early days to get rich. And like I don't think that's the, the case going forward. I don't yeah, think but that's th- going to be the case. Think about the opposite with the fiat currency world where we're experiencing now quite high inflation where you've got to do a lot and you can end up with nothing. Yeah. Well, that I prefer a world where, where you can do nothing and end up with more. Yeah, now, everyone wants that. That's the millennial uh, dream right there. Yeah, but, <laughs> but 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 you look at those two ex- you look at those two extremes. Neither are correct, but there's correct. a there's an there's like a, an ounce well, of truth in both of them. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think that like Bitcoin's early days are not indicative of where it's going to go. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. But it's it's just interesting to look at the history of Bitcoin and the number of people who spent time in prison for doing things in Bitcoin that are maybe nefarious, wherein the holders themselves, I mean, Mark Ox is a perfect example. I don't know how many people are going to be made wealthy when the Gox stuff gets paid out. The false total. Yeah. Where they were forced to hold for, what, 10 years, eight years? They were forced to hold. And most of them would not have. I know that. You know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. So it doesn't matter what haircut they end up taking. Like, they are going to, there's going to be so many people made wealthy by accidentally like losing their money in Gox in an early in an early bankruptcy, and I, I, mean, I don't know that that's a story that's going to be repeated again and again. Do you look Do you look back uh, at the early days of Bitcoin fondly? Yeah, yeah, but I, I look I look on today's Bitcoin uh, days as fondly as well. Like I look back on the earliest days of Bitcoin fondly because I think that there were very few people recording the history, and I feel like. I got to be at the center of it because there were eight of us, you know, uh, most of us under pseudonyms. Like, I, I don't know that like even those early guys would know who I was right in the forums or in the Skype. Have you, have you ever declared who you were? To some, to some I've talked to them about it. Like, Oh my God, that was you. So like, you know, and it's not, it's not a big secret. It's just kind of like early on, you know, I was an anarchist. I thought we were overthrowing the government, you know, I got to do it secret. Like, you know, so I think there was very few people recording or th- recording history. I didn't like write it down until Bitcoin Uncensored. We really did like do kind of a weekly brief on the history of Bitcoin, which is kind of awesome because like it perfectly encapsulates that time. And I think we basically got a cycle in a pump cycle. So that that's really an important like period because people can listen to that now every pump cycle and kind of realize that every every single time it's the same. It's the same shit every goddamn time. But that was that was a time when when we recorded history. So there's a lot of history that like I've lost in my memory. I'm sure uh, that when you listen to Bitcoin Uncensored, it's like very detailed. But the early history there just wasn't a lot of people. And you know we were geeks living in our mom's basements or you know sitting in our living rooms unmarried, getting broken up with by our girlfriends who thought we were nutters. And uh, and they're just the history. It was slow. I mean, like for us, if we got, if we saw an article in any sort of newspaper, anything like a small town newspaper talks about Bitcoin, like we thought that, like, oh fuck, the price is going to go. It's going to like ten x today. You know, it was it was just every little movement. That the it was it, it it reminds me very much of a parent looking at their child and applauding that they're pooping. 
Like these are these are the accomplishments of a, a neonate. Uh, this little child. Oh my God, he pooped on his own. Like I'm so proud of him. Right. Like that was Bitcoin early on. It was. Oh my God, it just took its first steps. Oh, and the things that we thought were big deals were not. I, I remember when Bitcoin Magazine came out, issue number one, Barnes and Noble uh, put it in some chains. I don't know how many, maybe all of them, but they put like one copy in. And I guess it's really fairly easy to get distribution there. Yeah, I don't think they sold. I don't think they did that again until probably it's probably there now. But they, I remember when Barnes and Noble, it was like, this is it. We're in Barnes and Noble. And like you go into Barnes and Noble, there's like 400 magazines on that rack. Like nobody's going to buy it just because it's there. But when they got into Barnes and Noble, it was like the biggest deal in Bitcoin. It was the biggest news in the world. And that was true of like everything. Like every time an exchange was launched, every time it got a little easier to purchase. Uh, I remember when Circle launched. Circle I don't know who they hired, but they inundated Reddit with, this is the most innovative exchange. No one's ever seen anything like it. This is the most exciting thing we've ever seen in Bitcoin. And it was just an exchange. It was just another <laughs> But I remember even Chris on BU and uh, the other people that were coming to our meetups were just, like, they, they were hyped about Circle. Even and I, I remember just sitting there like, it's going to be just the same, guys. It's going to be Coinbase. It's going to be the same thing. But were there any moments where you thought, okay, this this is significant. This is a ma- like a significant change. You know, in my Bitcoin lifetime, El Salvador is a significant thing. Whether it works out or not, will be seen, or how it works out. But that that's a significant thing. What Michael Saylor did is a significant thing. Tesla coming out and buying one point five billion of Bitcoin. That's a significant thing. I, I find I find rich people doing rich people things to be completely insignificant in this space, and it's because like. When Michael Saylor buys all those coins, he's putting everything on black on a maybe a weighted roulette board that generally falls on black. I don't know. When Elon Musk does that, he's the world's richest person. He's like taking a small portion of his wealth. Oh, it's a billion dollars. He's taking a small portion of his wealth and putting it in. Rich people make stupid bets all the time. They're idiots. Mark Cuban is an absolute moron. You know, he he put his money into Voyager. I, I mean, I could have told him what was going to happen to these things. Like, I'm, I'm afraid of Coinbase, you know. Coinbase gives these loans and like these leverage kills eventually if, if it's unmanaged and maybe Coinbase is managing it, but like we, we just witnessed numerous companies that didn't manage their leverage. So I'm, I'm uninterested in what rich people do. And the, the, the moments for me in Bitcoin where I have sort of had that aha moment have always been when impoverished people like El Salvador perhaps, but I, I think El Salvador is a bad example of that even. When impoverished people are forced into a position to use this. So there are, and again, this is like this is Bitcoin uncensored. We were obsessed with this. Who needs it? Because this this thing is it's sort of like there's this new thing we have. It's this digital scarcity. What what's it good for? You know. And the answer is nothing for me or for you. You don't need it. You got Great Britain pounds and. You can use U.S. dollars. Uh, you're allowed into a bank. Well, this is exactly what we said at the meetup last night. Yeah. You know, uh, there were a bunch of people in there asking different questions and you know, came out and said, we're the, us people in this room today are the people who need Bitcoin the least. Yeah, you don't need Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't need mean, Bitcoin. You don't need Bitcoin. But like, I, I, I remember when Backpages... No, we, no, I need it. I need it the least. Yeah. Well, I, I still need it. You might need it someday. You don't need it today. You don't need it. But it's but all insurance you buy in advance. 
Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Like I, yeah. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm fully with you. But but there's people that need it today. Yes, they need it. There's no other options. And like I, it's really interesting to me that like the governments didn't do a lot of this stuff. Like for the history of humanity, we've had all of these you know very centralized systems that show up and they fuck you. They just like here's your asshole. Here's the cock and bam, bam right right in there, and they just fuck you. And there's nothing you can do. And there's history and stories of all of this. So, like, I don't know, maybe in 1990, if back pages exist, the government could have shown up and been like, okay, turn off the visa, turn off the MasterCard, turn off all, and then back pages would have gone away. Well, they did that in what, 2016 or 15? And now, I mean, they ultimately had to just arrest the people that that owned back pages to get rid of them. But what did Backpages do? Backpages switched the day that they took away all of their financial options and just said, fine, we'll take Bitcoin. Wikipedia early on got cut off from their banks, got cut off from PayPal. their PayPal and MasterCard and Visa accounts, everything. You mean WikiLeaks, not Wikipedia? Yes. Did I say Wikipedia? You meant WikiLeaks. I meant WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Yeah. WikiLeaks uh, got cut off from all that. And they, uh, I remember this distinctly, like Bitcoin had just been mentioned on NPR. It had gone from just under a dollar to $30 uh, as a result of that mentioning on NPR, that story. And then on the way down at around $15 or $20, uh, WikiLeaks announces that they're going to start taking Bitcoin donations, which, you know, infuriated Satoshi. He was, he was not happy about this. He said well, that. He didn't want the eye on them. Yeah. But WikiLeaks needed it. Um, drug dealers need Bitcoin. I mean, like, I hate to say it, but they need it. Like, this drug, is drug users. Drug users need Bitcoin. They need to get they need to get meds. They need to get a, a heroin, whatever it is, from dark markets. Uh, these 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 infrastructures exist all over the world where people need a thing that does what Bitcoin does. And maybe you don't like what they do. Maybe you don't like who they are, but they need it. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. And now they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. If you are looking for a banking provider that understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I'm a customer of Compass 2, and I am back mining Bitcoin, and I've been mining for nearly a year now, and I've mined over 0.75 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass have launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, 
I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm still only buying, right? We're hodlers. The market's looking good. We're not sellers. And I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have Cake Wallet. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both my security and privacy because it doesn't share my important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can I hodl Bitcoin, but I can easily pay privately with Monero. Cake Wallet is accelerating Bitcoin adoption, since they now support buying gift cards instantly with Bitcoin, which can be used at over 150,000 merchants in the US. You can easily purchase the exact amount you need at the register and have the gift card appear instantly within Cake Wallet without needing to wait for any confirmations. And you also get to save an average 2% on purchases. And Cake Pay only requires an email, nothing else. To check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Google or Apple app stores. Or maybe you don't admit publicly you like what they do. Maybe. But maybe. you secretly engage in the same activity. As long as there are people that need it, this thing that exists that's decentralized that is essentially oil value. It's just, it just, it's like a container of value. As long as this thing exists, these people can and will use it, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that, that to me is the aha moment for me. I don't care what rich people do, but I care about the people all over the world, wherever they are, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, whether it's black people in the ghetto uh, selling uh, drugs, doesn't matter who it is. There are people that need it. And that's something that's really unique. It's not, this isn't an iPhone. This isn't like conceptually something that comes out of like Steve Jobs' head where he says, uh, you know, I think people want this. And if they don't, I'm going to make them want it. You know, it's not that. It's literally unique in all aspects and in, in everything that it does. It's the first time we've ever been able to contain value digitally in a way that is scarce and yours and not anybody else's. And we didn't know exactly what that would be used for, but now it's obvious. And that's why those aha moments for me are or when I see like the impoverished get it, like for me that is moving in the way that like uh, Roger Veer cries uh, whenever he's on video talking about kids getting bombed by war. For me, it's very moving. Uh, similarly, to see like impoverished people, people that need something, find access to it. You know, it's it's incredible. And to me, that is like the Bitcoin one moment. Um, and the ATMs, I think Bitcoin ATMs are a great example of the way in which like this is sort of like you, you see Bitcoin winning at every Bitcoin ATM. You go there, you meet the people that are doing it. Like these are people that like are converting their assets into like this digital good. And they're doing it because they think it's better than anything else they can have. And they need it. They need it. Before this, they had gold chains that they would buy or gold necklaces or like just gold coins or whatever, but like, or they put it in their teeth. 
Now they can hold Bitcoin. So does Bitcoin in your teeth. what Bitcoin means to you, is it still fundamentally the same then? Has yeah. it not changed? Nothing's changed. There's nothing interesting here. I mean, like, this is just value. Bitcoin's uninteresting. Like, I, I hate Bitcoiners for the most part because they are absurdly obsessed with, like, the interesting things about Bitcoin. There's nothing interesting here. This is the same. It's the same as it's always been. Bitcoin is contained digital value. That's it. It does nothing else. There's, you know, you can be creative. You can spam the chain and run a botnet with it, maybe. But, like, it's just value. There's nothing interesting. And, and the thing about it, or like what it will do is the same thing value has always done. It will move from here to there. That's what it will always do. I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay, go. I'm going to challenge you. I'm just going to bring out one example. I'm going to say mining has become infinitely more interesting than it was four years ago. Sure, but that, that's, that's fine. But like, that is interesting. So I think mining is going to become part of the national energy infrastructure. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. But it's not even just that. We had this guy on Adam Wright the other day, and he's taking Bitcoin miners to landfill sites, and he's turning methane, which is 86 times uh, worse for the environment than carbon, and he is... And, and by the way, these landfill sites, they have to deal with the methane. Oh, we, like, we have one uh, just north of yeah. uh, Waste Management, actually. And you can put a miner on there, and you can take the methane, and you can turn it into Bitcoin. That, yep. is, that is interesting. Yeah. And then that is interesting for multiple reasons, because it's this external use case for Bitcoin that wasn't thought about. I know Hal said, I wonder what Bitcoin can do well, for well, the question. The question the in all cases with Bitcoin mining is like, what is the second best use of the energy, right? So like in, for example, waste management up, up in uh, Fort Lauderdale does the same thing. They extract the methane and they convert, I think, to natural gas, which they put in their trucks. Huh. So there's, the question is whether like that is more or less profitable than putting a miner on, you know, that thing, or maybe they have too much gas, right? So they like need to do something with it. I don't know. Maybe it's, they do have like a flame running on one of their, but I think um, the thing is that for the Bitcoiners is it's not whether the movement of value is interesting, which which it, it is interesting because at certain times you're opening up a value exchange that people didn't have before. You know, didn't they didn't have access to that value exchange? But it's the consequences of Bitcoin that can be interesting. Like, what does it mean? What what are the implications but, of? But, but every all of those all of all of those consequences flow from one truth, which is that this is contained digital value. Yeah, that none of them matter. Like, of course, mining is has other uses. Like, of course, not that it has other uses. Mining is very simply the act of generating a random receipt that proves that you burned energy, right? That's all it is. It's a global receipt. It's an NFT of energy, of energy <laughs> burn. That's all it is. It's a very boring, mundane thing. But because this, because this, uh, this random number, which validates against this other number, this nonce, is so hard to generate uh, because it's it's random. It's truly truly random because it's so hard to generate. You basically have like a global competition for it. Like it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory looking for like the gold ticket, right? Like this global competition for the for the golden ticket every ten minutes, right? And someone finds it. It's very boring, very mundane. But that's all Bitcoin is: is contained value. So any of these external effects, like the fact that mining is good for attaching to an energy infrastructure, the fact that anything is useful as a result of Bitcoin comes from the fact that Bitcoin is nothing interesting. It's just contained value. That's it. That's all things flow from that. 
<laughs> I think show title, there's nothing interesting about it. There is nothing. Yeah, that's a great show title. There's nothing interesting about it. And, and yeah, so for me, it's the same as it's always been. This is value. It, and, and that's the most exciting thing that anyone's ever figured out is that out of this like weird math equation, this math problem that we have where we combine like computer science and economics, we call it the Byzantine generals problem. Out of this, the fart of this math problem is this little thing we call Bitcoin. We didn't know what it was. Incidentally, it it's something that a lot of people have found use to the tune of Bitcoin being worth $20,000 right now. I mean, I find that pretty interesting. It's amazing. It is. That is, that is, the fact is interesting. But the thing is not. It's mundane. Like, it's a pool noodle. It's not interesting. It's like... So back in the Bitcoin Uncensored days, like, this was a big part of your life. Like, is Yeah. That, yeah. What is it now, though? Is it something like you still daily pay attention to? You're thinking about all the time? Or has it changed? Well, because you haven't become resentful, like some, like you can see the life cycle of some people. They come in, they stay, they leave, and they become resentful. Yeah, the resentments. Like, like a Mike Hearn. Yes. A Gavin Andreessen. Yeah. Well, I, I, okay. So I've never felt like I have anything to do with what we're doing here, ever. Um, there's like, I've never, I've never been self important about Bitcoin. I've never felt like I'm a crucial figure here. Uh, I've always kind of felt tangential and there's no room for a tangential person to get bitter. I've always like Bitcoin uncensored. I felt like John Madden sitting in the booth announcing a football game. He has no bearing on the outcome of the game. I'm just like, look at the core devs. The core devs right now are lining up on the field and up there up against the uh, dash devs. Oh, look at that. The dash devs have been just decimated. They've, oh, go, touchdown, core devs. You know, like that's, that's what I felt like for, uh, for the years that we were doing Bitcoin Uncensored. So I've never felt like I had anything to do with this. And to me, if this thing that we have, which is digital scarcity, matters, then the only one that matters is Bitcoin. And there's a, re there's a lot of reasons for that. But like, it's clear to me that the competition for this space leads to the, leads to the, uh, the emergence, the emergence yeah. of a single winner. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think today is the like, why am I a Bitcoin Maxi episode? But there's a lot of reasons for that. And once you've decided that, once you've kind of figured that out and you realize that like, Bitcoin is the only one that matters. There's, I, I just don't see any room for resentment. Like, what, what could I be resentful about? Not getting, like, not, not being a billionaire? I'm not resentful about that. I, I, there's plenty of time. Um, Bitcoin isn't for me. It's for the world. This is a thing that's important because, uh, because it's something that's needed. There's a lot of people that are late to the party because they, they, they didn't see or understand what it was. And maybe they probably, like those who are late to the party, probably still don't understand exactly what they're looking at. They think it's interesting, like we were talking about. They think it's interesting and it's not. Um, we, are, we are all sitting here in purgatory, waiting for Bitcoin to become, to, to make us wealthy. All of us, Bitcoiners, the, the Bitcoin maxes, you know. And but I, but I are we? Are we? No, I, I mean, well, I'm not. But I, like, I, but I think we start that way. So you you get in early. You perhaps or you perhaps see your first five x, ten x, whatever happens, and then you can become addicted to price. But then I think you start to care less about price. Well, that's the that's the Mr. Bean meme. But but even still, I think I think there's a tendency 
to sit around and wait. And my life, my life around Bitcoin, I've always loved Bitcoin. I do Bitcoin things. I think about Bitcoin. I think what I think are original thoughts about Bitcoin. And whether they are or not. And, uh, and all, all through that time, whether it was Bitcoin Uncensored or whether it's, you know, my married life now or uh, whether in the future it's having kids or whether it's with my family or whatever, whatever, whatever the hell it is. Um, I've always tried to live, to make sure that I'm not doing like the Bitcoin purgatory thing and that I'm living my life in such a way that I am, uh, that, that I'm able to kind of continue it and, and, and not just wait for Bitcoin to go up in price as like the world changes. It's, uh, it's actually remarkably, remarkably simple for me. And as like, like I said, Bitcoin isn't that interesting. So like, it's not that hard. And I, I'm always fascinated by, oh, I love Angel's Envy. I'm always fascinated by, uh, we need some eyes. Yeah. Maybe you do. Shout out Sahil for the whiskey. Yeah. Thank you, Sahil, for the whiskey. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pour yours first. Not like last time. There you go. You did some good vamping there, Jinsef. I thought you were going to have to sing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on, man. We haven't got any glasses here. This is good enough. The Jinsef pour. Um, the Jinsef pour. But I, having it in a mug. <laughs> Cheers. That's how you do it. This is the Florida way. Uh, I, I, do, I do think that like Bitcoin's pretty uninteresting, and I, I, I do think that there's a lot of people waiting in purgatory, in, in conclusion. Like, that's not... The, the purgatory thing to me is, is sad because it's a lot of people waiting around for other people to do work that will make them rich. And I find that to be a valueless life. I mean, we talked about this last time, like how I view work, but I think that that's a really, like I've, I've always tried to avoid getting into a position where I'm waiting for other people to do stuff for me. Yeah. So I, maybe I'm different, but I've gone on a different journey with this. You are kind of lazy. <laughs> You've done nothing in the last few years. Jesus. Uh, it's been a different journey. It's been yeah. the more I've learned about Bitcoin and money, the less I care about being kind of super rich anymore. And the yeah. more I care about what I do with my time. I, I actually agree with that in some way. I mean, like for me, sounds very virtuous. No, no, it, it's not. A, it's not that it's virtuous. What you realize is that, like, if the obsession, the obsession of money is like an obsession with putting fuel in your car. You can't do anything. You, like like people dream of getting to this place where they're living off of like the fumes of the gas in their engine, I guess, like a perpetual motion idea mm-hmm. where the money generates more money and then that money generates more money and then I'm just, you know, rich forever. And I, I guess like there might be a theoretical amount where that's possible. But when you start realize like you, you you have to live your life at some point and you start to realize that like there is more to life than just earning earning dollars. Like you have to go on vacation. You have to go see people. Uh, you have to, I don't know, get married. Like you, you have to, you have to move on. You have to get to the next stage. And per, like, I, I do feel like Bitcoin has like stunted a lot of people in that way. Um, I guess, I, this I was originally a question about resentment though. <laughs> well, but I did start that way, you know, and I, and I, in that first cycle, I made a lot of money and lost a lot of money. And Were you was, resentful at first or? No, do you know what? It's a weird, no, cause it never felt real. I was disappointed in myself, but not resentful. I was just disappointed. I was like, oh, I got greedy, whatever. Everyone gets greedy. But then I was like, well, I'm not going to be a trader, so I'll just work. And I work my nuts off in this podcast and Danny, Danny as well. And you know, we, we've, as a team, just really worked hard. But it's, it's, nev- it's never really been that much about the money. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a business. We want to make money. 
But that whole get super rich thing, we might laugh about it or joke about it or talk about if Bitcoin does this, but genuinely, and I think what it is, is you get exposed to, once you start to understand how money works, you, you start to learn how the system fucks so many people. And so then it becomes a little bit more mission driven. It's like, how can how can this help other people to be less fucked? Well, that's that's I think for me too, the guarding against like the resentment stuff, because for me, Bitcoin has always like for me, um again, I've I've never felt like I had an actual role. Like I've just kind of like been a, a clowny announcer. And for me, like any participation in this at all has always been about the fact that, you know, if this works, we've changed the world. You know, maybe not not as significantly as maybe Bitcoiners think, but maybe as significantly. But maybe we change the world two percent. Maybe we've made it two percent better. Maybe this is two percent better than the system that exists. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's ten percent. But a ten percent leap is like I don't think people realize. Like you have a ten percent leap forward in tech. That that's astounding. The the compounding effect of that in the future would be. Ridiculous. Well, you make ten percent people's lives better. It's eight hundred million people. Well, I don't mean ten percent of people's yeah, lives. Like, I just mean like if the if the system is more efficient, ten percent. But I'm saying if you can make ten percent of people's lives better. Yeah, but in this case, let's say let's say that Bitcoin's two percent better. And you're right. Like maybe ten percent of people, like specifically, their lives would be better. But like let's say Bitcoin's two percent better. That's astounding. That's an astounding reality. And I, I view Bitcoin as possibly one of those things that could be two percent better than what exists. And if that's the case, just holding a little bit will make a person phenomenally rich. You know, that's that's the uh, that's the VC problem. Is VCs are always looking for companies that are going to like make an industry one percent or a quarter percent better than it is. Well, that's why sixteen Z now cares about a lot of things outside of Bitcoin. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they, they should. They but. can't make that, that <laughs> those percentages on Bitcoin, so now it has to be Web three and DeFi. Well, who, I mean, like that's you know that's not true. Like, I know it is true. Bitcoin could be ten x. Uh, it could, could go 10x again and 15x yeah, again. Yeah, but they, the only way they can do that is by holding it. They, yeah. they they have to do more than hold. They have to build or invest in people. And making money in Bitcoin is hard. Yeah. You know, creating companies that can make money on top of Bitcoin is hard. It's, it's, a, it's ridiculously hard. Yeah. Um, and again, that's the volatility thing. I, I don't know exactly what, like, I mean, again, like I've watched so many, like my, my, my vision, my dream is like a play where you have a guy sit his family down and go, honey, um, kids, got good news. Uh, we're really wealthy. <laughs> we're fucking, we are to the moon wealthy. We you won't even believe it. Rich. We are rich. Honey, quit your job tomorrow. Kids, stop going to school. You're going to, you're unschooled. Now you're playing in the backyard. That's, that's your life now. Uh, so congrats guys. We did it. Familial wealth. We did it. And then scene two is he brings him. Okay, guys, um, got some bad news. I we are up. impoverished. Uh, we have no money. Bitcoin's down. You're gonna have to go get a job, kids. You're gonna set up a lemonade stand outside. And then scene three is him like opening the windows and kind of insouciantly like yelling, "Kids, shut the lemonade stand down! Bitcoin's back up!" You know. And I, I, I view this like as a cycle of Bitcoiners. It, it's like constant for them. They like Bitcoiners do this, and they make the same mistakes every cycle, where they're declaring themselves wealthy, and then they you know become poor, and then they're wealthy again, and they're poor. But like their their level of poverty is always like hilarious <laughs> it's like i'm rich i have half a million dollars and they're like i'm rich i have three million dollars and then they're poor i'm poor i have one million dollars i'm rich i have six million dollars oh i'm poor i only have three million dollars and like there's this constant like rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of like the levels so like 
when Bitcoin's down, you're impoverished. When Bitcoin's up, you're rich. And, uh, and, and it just resets your kind of like levels for the next cycle or whatever the hell it is that we're living in. I don't know. Danny, are you impoverished right now? I'm feeling pretty impoverished. Everyone feels impoverished in the down market. <laughs> you don't care about price. I'm pretty, I'm pretty zen about it all. Yeah, I don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't Honestly, really care. I don't give a shit. I, I do watch it. I, I care a little bit because in my, um, like I separate, I'll have, you know, I separate it out into like my earnings. I'm like a hooker. I, uh, I have my money that I made hooking. That's my Bitcoin money. And then I have the money that I made like in the uh, like waiting tables over here. So the, the waiting tables money, I put it into more traditional finance products. And like a part of that is like GBTC. And I do trade volatility just for fun. But that's that's kind of like that. I feel like that's the money that I earned. <laughs> like that's that's the stuff I got. That's the, that's the stuff I did, you know. Um, which is different than the Bitcoin, which I just feel like I sat down, did nothing with, and and it went up. And I, I feel very kind of uh, bad about that. It's, like I, I don't feel guilty. I feel a little guilty about that. Ah, man. You served your time here in the Bitcoin world, even as a stadium announcer. I've, I'm to a stadium announcer. And, yeah. Uh, you've you know, worked and you did your time and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's not that it's, that, it's, it's just that like, uh, there's, there's not, I, I don't truly feel like uh, utterly guilty, but like, it's just, it's just funny because I think when you look back at Bitcoin, you have to acknowledge that a large number of us just didn't do much. Like the work of the core devs, the people that are involved, like they did a ton. Yeah. And even like, even those going forward, like the work of the future core devs, the people that are going to come here later, they're going to do way more than I ever did. And they're going to be able to afford fractions of the Bitcoin that I was able to get. And that's going to be true forever and ever. And I think I just think that's interesting. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe just being here early was a, a giant contribution. But it, it, is, it is interesting to me that the people that are going to like make interesting discoveries and you know, the Luke Dash Juniors and whatever, like those, the, the, the future Luke Dash Juniors, are going to do what I would perceive as way more influential things and uh, and have access to less of it because. But maybe you will support those people. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think that's kind of uh, contingent on the old Bitcoiners to do. By the way, we haven't really touched on the DeFi stuff. Oh, we can touch on DeFi. <laughs> <Let's do that. laughs> well, it's an it's an important thing to talk about. Um, mine's a Bitcoin show, but I have plenty of people listen to it who are uh, crypto well, people. Well, DeFi is important because this cycle it's been basically the like. The catalyst for the the downfall of the price for every every instrument here, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or a Cardano or whatever, like DeFi is the thing that's kind of led the way for destruction, the price destruction. Yeah, well, there's something every cycle. I mean, I think that's the memory of this cycle is going to be the the DeFi contagion. The previous one would have been the ICO. How? What was previous to that? Uh, let's see. So I see a Mt. Gox crash. That's yeah. the, that's the big one there. Uh, what scams were run then? Uh, there were a lot of token scams. It was token scams. Again, it was like, was it colored coins? Were they scams? They didn't call them colored coins. Uh, but there were a lot of things like, like, so in that cycle, there were a bunch of projects, uh, storage and like other types of projects like that, where Everything was everything. It was put something on a blockchain. Yes, everything on a blockchain. Everything had to be on a blockchain. Um, it was the like blockchain my business era. So I think that was like Don Tapscott showed up and a bunch of others. It was the books, but that you know. And then before that, maybe it was Mount Gox. Yeah, because the twenty thousand dollar rise, like that was like the the era of the gurus too. Um, 
I don't know if it was a thousand, I remember. But like the the era of the gurus, but like there was all sorts of like like basically blockchain in my business. And a lot of like early on, all of the price destruction was pretty much led by collapsing exchanges, right? So you had uh like Cripsy and and Mt. Gox and stuff like that. All of the like always it was like halted because an exchange would collapse. And it's interesting this time because it's not so much like this time the price collapse is like a leading indicator of exchange collapses, which was a little different than the last times. Like the, the this time the price collapse caused the exchange collapse. Well, have we have we had an exchange collapse in the cycle? Voyager, Celsius. I mean, do you, do you consider those exchanges? I don't consider them exchanges. Uh, I guess. I mean, they're different than like Coinbase, but they're they're exchanges. BlockFi. Like these are exchange like. They're at least tangential too, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think Voyager was a, an exchange, wasn't it? I consider them. I mean, I can't think of a name for them, but they're borrowing and lending services. I, th- I consider them financial services. But Coinbase borrows and lends, right? So, like, I thought you could buy and sell on Voyager as well. Yeah, I, I guess what it is is that the primary product on Coinbase is to exchange, and you can borrow and lend. And I think on a Voyager yes, was when, the primary product was to buy and lend or a borrow yeah. and lend, and then you could also buy. Yeah, and out of the and look, I know some of these services aren't popular. I know because one of them, one of my sponsors, is BlockFi, and I get criticized a lot for having them as a sponsor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my first tweet when I heard you advertise for them was, you're going to regret that one. <laughs> well, I mean, we can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah I, no, that's fine. I mean, we should. You no, know, I've, been, I've taken a lot of criticism for it. And recently, people have been questioning, you know, why have I not got rid of them as a sponsor? And like, what's my opinion on it? And uh, I've always been very clear. I, lo- I use their services. So I use their um, borrowing service. And I would, uh, no, their lending service. Which one do I use? Lending. You, you lend. Yeah, I lend yeah. and get a uh, interest uh, pay, payment back. And I also use, uh, I would use their borrowing. Unfortunately, yeah, it's not set up in the right way for me. But if I was to buy a house and I had enough Bitcoin to be able to borrow against that to buy pay a mortgage, again, I would consider something like that. Uh, I've had a, uh, my service them hasn't been uh, interrupted in any way at all. And I'd actually use their card, but the card isn't available in the UK. But uh, they've never paused withdrawals. Nobody's no, ever, no, had, ever had their funds withheld. They've, they've been the most legitimate. I'm glad Sam well, Bankman Freed. Led in as well. Yeah, SBF, yeah. Uh, Sam Bankman Freed stepped in and basically you know, made them solvent, right? Like, their actual their interest rates dropped heavily. People were like, well, why would you use them? Their interest rates are so low. You can get 5% <laughs> here, 6% there. The reason you got low interest rates is they didn't do any exotic weird shit. Uh, they didn't do any, you know. They didn't wrap your Bitcoin. Well, they, they've, they, you know, they made their, they made their interest by lending the Bitcoin out to other people. has been screwed twice, right? Uh, in this recent sort of like downfall, I think they've probably learned a lot. But before that, like their interest was heavily contingent on the GBTC premium. Yeah, and I think, I think that like as I see these crypto cycles happen. And these tr- these companies that are offering traditional products, I mean, like you can get a credit line against your equities. It's a priority credit line. Get it from Wells Fargo, Fidelity. Like there's all sorts of companies that offer these. Uh, if you're if you're getting, a, a, like it's a legitimate product, a credit line, and and you need to you need to be compensated interest wise. But like this is a legitimate product. So like as as these companies fail, as they make mistakes, as they do th- as they watch their competitors fail. I think it becomes very clear where the risks are and it makes them more resilient. So, I mean, like I could see a company like BlockFi coming out of this with an enormous understanding of where they failed and the possibility of actually making a, 
uh, a much more robust lending product and other such. Well, we got more robust exchanges after Mt. Gox. Yeah. And we will get more. It might even not be BlockFi. It might be somebody else. It might be. I mean, Eleven. it might be Nasdaq that yeah. like launches. I mean, these these products. I mean, uh, was it uh, Nidig yeah. has has a lending product. I don't love a lot of the terms of these lending products. Coinbase has a lending product. Uh, you know, all uh, these lending products I think are are dangerous, only because of the volatility of Bitcoin. But I don't think they always have to be. And I I do like, I do like the sort of uh, experiment that we're allowed to do on this. And I, as well as like, I think people got to recognize this is like, I think you have to figure out the CFI stuff, the centralized finance stuff before we like move into sort of a, the era of DeFi, you have to figure out where CFI plugs into Bitcoin very specifically. And is Bitcoin gold? If it is, then yeah, like lending against, it's a great idea. But I do, I do want to reiterate that point because, you know, I've taken a lot of uh, punches on Twitter for, for it. And, you know, why would you have them as a sponsor? And it's, why would I not? I use their products. I like their products. You might not. You might think they're bad for people and you should tell people what you think. But I use it. So why would I not yeah. have it as a sponsor? I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, I rejected Celsius. I actually Mashinsky in Hong Kong. I met him in Hong Kong. He asked to buy out. He wanted to outbid BlockFi and I refused to work with him. I knew their product was shit. I'm not sure if I should be saying this. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, but whatever. Um, but the point is that BlockFi jail. is a product I use and I would use them if they weren't a sponsor. So like what like where is my moral requirement? Where is my ethical boundary? Like, yeah, well I I think I think that like as long I mean I, I tend to say do all things with irony. Um I think it's a very hard thing. I think people need to shut the fuck up because like taking money is a is is a sort of problematic thing to do in all cases for like a journalist, right? Always. Especially when like it's a small team, like you know where the money comes from. There's not like a back office that does like, you know, the sales of the ads and then the front office that has no idea what those ads are. Like you know all of your sponsors. Well, I know all the sponsors yeah. I've turned down as well. Yeah, 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 of course. But like my point is that like it really does it it does make it so that like there is sure, absolutely a bias. But I, I think I think that like if you are putting yourself in a position like let's say you're advertising things like I, I get mad at like people like Ben Shapiro he's I don't know how many mattresses he's advertised as being his favorite mattress right and I think to myself does that guy have like 14 mattresses stacked on each other like I don't like he's got the Helix and he's got like the Casper and he's like they're just stacking on top of he's each got other a pee at the bottom each one yeah each one's his favorite mattress like I really I am really turned off by that kind of advertising I think the fact that you are advertising stuff that you're in. Um, it doesn't validate it for me, but I, I think that people like in this space really need to understand that like there is there is a conflict because um, and I think about this like investments when I'm when I'm putting money into something in this space, I don't do very many individual investments, but when I do, I feel very reluctant to talk about them because I don't I don't know if eventually it might blow up, and I don't like the idea of like getting people into this thing um, that I'm putting money into, uh, be, you know, getting people to like use it based on my name or anything like that, or, or my level of trust. Not, I don't know if I have any, but I do very strongly like want to guard that the little credibility I have in that way. And so I've like been very like careful about talking about that stuff, but like a podcast is very different. And you know, when you run a podcast, I think you're taking money from people and like, it's a little, it can be a little hard to criticize them. I, I think you actually do a pretty good job of like running willingly taking the criticism. Yeah, look, th there is certainly a conflict. Yeah. You know, I am taking products. Can I be openly critical about these companies? Yeah. 
And then it's like, what is my role in this? Is my role a journalist or an interviewer? If I'm a journalist, should I be investigating these companies? Well, I'm not investigating Celsius or Voyager. I have people on have interviews. Will I talk about my relationship with BlockFi? Sure, I'm happy to talk about it. And you know, they've sponsored the show for plus three years now. Um, we we take our sponsors very seriously. I, you know, I talk through them and Danny is yeah, one of our one of our sponsors is a Bitcoin casino. You know, we talked about this. If well, should we be doing this? Yeah, you know, what about if people lose money on that? So, well, I go to Vegas, I lose money all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, these are free. These aren't scams. They operate within the law, but they are things where you have to understand the trade offs and the risk. Because you want to have a gamble. I think everybody who gambles knows there's a risk of losing. Yeah, and I think most people these days know with something like BlockFi, you're you're handing over your private keys, oh. and there's a risk. I'll you tell you. I'll for. tell you what I dislike about BlockFi is that, like, again, it's it's in the same space as like everything else in Bitcoin. There is. I do not think that they are compensating you appropriately appropriately for the risk that you're taking on. And I think this market is proving it. Like, I don't know what they're giving now. 3% a year? 2% depends, a year. It depends on how much you hold. But yeah, let's say it is that. And yet two weeks ago, they had to be bailed out and nearly went bankrupt. Yeah, but they weren't in a situation where they might have gone bankrupt and not been able to return funds. Okay, Their risk was a run on the bank. And what what did they call it? What does he call it? Um it's to do with the time difference. Like they've got your Bitcoin that they hold and the Bitcoin they lend out. Okay, so they yeah, need so they, they need they, they can't call all the loans in and they can't pay you. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So they it's, had it's a li- inventory problem. Yeah, an inventory problem and a liquidity problem, but it's not a problem where they've lost your funds, which appears to be the case with Celsius. It appears to be the case there's actually yes. a black hole, and it doesn't appear yeah, to be yeah. the case. Well, that's the thing. Like that's why that's why they were able to find a buyer, right? Sam Bankman Fried stepped in and he was like, "Well, this looks like you know these books balance." Right. Yeah. I'm sure Celsius's books do not balance. And how much stress on the BlockFi system came from the contagion of other things, and maybe they do come out this stronger and we get stronger products from that. I, I, my view on it is, is these are optional products. No one forces you to use it. Correct. And the risks are there, and you should and could be aware of them. I mean, we don't even advertise a yield at the moment. But, but it, you know, it is a tricky one. I, I have thought about this. I've thought about it a lot. I mean, you know, what is our responsibility here? You know, with every one of our sponsors, how much responsibility we have. Yeah, and I don't put I don't put a lot of like. I mean, like I we wrestle with it. it. Me and Danny talk about it a lot. I never wrestled with it. Like with Bitcoin Uncensored, the reason we never took any money was because then we never had to wrestle with that question. And the reason we never wanted to wrestle with that question is is this exact same you know issue, right? Yeah, you got to wrestle with it. We never did. Um, we also didn't make any money on Bitcoin Uncensored. Ever, you know, well, like that's that's the thing. Like we, it was never profitable. We just did it because it was fun. Yeah. So well. We did, but we have seven employees, and you know, we have. Oh, okay, you have a whole operation. We yeah. we had nothing. It was it was Chris and me, and like just just fucking having fun. It was just a blast, and that's that's what I loved. Uh, that's what I loved about it. It was it was really fun to just like do it, but it was also tedious and uh, arduous, and like you know there was never any money. It was just it was just us just making making content and just having fun. And uh, and I, I do think I do think that that is the difference. Like if you're running this as a business, it's a little different. Like we were able to do something that was a little bit more artistic, a little bit more like uh, journalistic, confusing to everybody, but sort of postmodern journalism. And I think it's very difficult for anybody else to do that. It's just it's an era. It's a different type of thing. And like I think nowadays. People are here to uh, they're they're building something a little different than we were. Well, so uh, that's another thing people have said was like, well, why don't you charge for the content? Why don't you do nobody that? Nobody buys content. Nobody does. Nobody buys content. What, like what? I've been in content for forever. No one buys content. It's not fair to ask. Do you remember? It's when, never fair to do ask. Do you remember when we did? How many subscribers did we have for our content on Patreon? 
No, not Patreon. You know when people we had that email list. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the people who paid twelve. Yeah, I think I think it went from yeah. I think maybe fourteen was our top. Fourteen is sixty dollars a year. Yeah, and of them, some of them were like sponsors who had bought boy anyway. Yeah, so fourteen at sixty dollars a year. So that's what's that's. Six hundred people don't buy content. Eight hundred forty dollars, yeah. and, and that might change yeah. in the future. But people just don't like it's. It's a very difficult pitch. Yeah, to make people buy content. It's very difficult. Um, I subscribe to some uh, some content. There's a couple of podcasts I subscribe to. Um, I don't know how well they do, but the people won't subscribe to content. So the mo- only model is the advertiser model, and then so you know what are the rules? We we have a very. I say we. I mean I. You know, I'm not going to put this on Danny. They're my rules. My rules is. Are you a Bitcoin company? You, or do you have a Bitcoin product? If you have a Bitcoin product, okay, you're considered. And the second one, will I use it or am I using it? So if you've got a Bitcoin product and I do or will use it, then I'm happy to sponsor you to be a sponsor. I use BlockFi. You know, I use Gemini. I use Casa. You know, if you go through our list of sponsors, I, I, use, I literally use all of them. And so it's very hard for me to say is, why would I not accept their sponsorship revenue for a product I would use? Now, I've turned down stuff that I won't use or wouldn't use or don't use, and that's fine. And we've turned Do, down a lot. So, so I, we should talk about that because I think that ties yeah. into the DeFi. Yeah. I think, I think that was what was interesting to me is in this cycle, in this growth, in this like, you know, now, now we're in crypto winter. This is a time to reflect, a time to think back on the last year or a few months. And uh, I, think, I think what was interesting to me was, I, the, the number of Bitcoiners that I watched get sucked into things that they know are bullshit. Um, the NFT stuff, for example, I, 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 you know, have story after story of Bitcoiners who came up to people or me or others and were like, "I have some NFTs, and I love them." You know, and you just kind of sitting there, like, you know, programmers, people that know what these things are, they're literally receipts. And I would say to everybody, like, if you want to buy NFTs, I don't care. I don't find them to be scammy. I find them to be beanie babies. They're just collectibles, and you're buying a receipt. That's it. It's a very dumb purchase, but right now, for some reason, there's prestige coming from it. So do it with irony, go forth. But there's a lot of Bitcoiners that were buying NFTs. And I think similarly, there were a lot of Bitcoiners that were enticed by the DeFi pitches. And I saw like Novogratz, right? He's not a Bitcoiner. Novogratz has always had a love for like Ethereum. I think it's because he was brought into the space by Joel Lubin. But he's always had kind of a love for Ethereum and Ethereum type products. He got a tattoo, a goddamn tattoo of Luna. He's got a lot of tattoos now. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got to cover it up. You know, he's got to like extract from the Luna tattoo. (laughs) So he got a tattoo about Luna. It's a wolf howling at the moon, you know. And I look at something like that, and I, 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 I mean, I, he was not the only one who got enticed. I, I saw Bitcoiners left and right. I knew a guy up in Boca. <laughs> this insane set of text messages. I messaged him uh, the day that Luna depegs, and uh, I'll call him John. I go, John, um, are you still in DeFi? Because like I'd, I'd been having dinners with John for months. And John had been telling me all of the DeFi shit he was in. And I was saying to him every time, like, you're going to lose all your money. This is hot potato. You don't know when the, you know, you don't know when the music's going to stop. It's, you know, it's, it's just like, it's over. You got to get out. It's good now. Get the fuck out. He's like, oh, it's, it's a long ways off. It's a long ways off. You know, we'd, we'd have this discussion. It's always a long ways off. Nobody knows like when, when the market's going to explode and no one ever knows when it's going to collapse. And when it collapses, it collapses quick. When it explodes, it explodes quick. It happens all the time. Here, here in this industry. And I've, I've witnessed it. Like I thought I had more time to buy $7 Bitcoin and then all of a sudden it was 800 bucks. 
So I, I asked him this. I was like, do you have uh, some DeFi stuff? And he, he messaged me back, oh, nothing, not too much. He's like, just, you know, just the safe stuff like Luna and a few others. And I'm like, oh, I guess he feels comfortable in these things, even though like Luna's clearly depegging weird. Week or two goes by, I don't see him. Uh, I message him back, hey, like, did, what's going on? He messaged me back. He says, I, I've lost huge amounts. I've lost everything. Like, I was on vacation. I hadn't been watching the prices. I didn't know Luna was depegging. And this happened to a lot of people. This kind of thing, I think, like, people were really very comfortable sitting in their DeFi, not because not because they, they knew it wouldn't collapse, but because they really thought that, like, it had been up for months, it had been up for months, and, like, this will not be the day. That seems to be, like, kind of This the, will not be the this day. This will not be the day. We've got one more day. It's not going to be the day. I'll, I'm going to go on vacation. It won't be this week. I'm on vacation. I'll come back next week. Maybe it'll be next week. And that's the week it, it collapses. And they don't realize how quickly it collapses. Like, Bitcoin Tina tells me this joke. Uh, a guy uh, goes into a stockbroker, and he's like, oh, my God. And there's this thinly traded stock. And he goes, I... I want to I want to buy this and he buys it and the stock price goes up $30. And he goes, "Oh my god, I've made so much money. I want to buy more." So he buys more and the price goes up $60. He's like, "Oh my god, I am so rich. I want to buy more." And he buys it and he's, it goes up it goes up another $30. So, "Oh my god, I this is crazy. Sell it. Sell it all." And his stockbroker looks at him and says, "Sell to whom?" <laughs> and I think that's I think that's like where everyone got caught. Is they didn't realize that they were playing uh, merry-go-round. They didn't. They were playing like Ponzi, you know, some sort of Ponzi game, and it ends at some point, and they don't know that. Like you'd never know when that's going to happen, and when it does, it's quick. But also, sometimes you think it's a dip and it's going to come back. Like I remember, you convince yourself of that. Back, back that's bargaining. In, back in 2017, when I first got in, I traded that 32,000. I was up over a million dollars in you know, Bitcoin and you know, various other shit coins. I remember I went to this place called Center Parks. It's a place in the UK. Uh, you go with your family and it's like a bunch of cabins and a water park and activity. It's great. I went with my kids and my dad and we sat there, me and my dad, one night having a drink. I'm talking about how well it's gone. My dad said, you know what you should do? He said, you get over a million here. Just take out half. You can go buy two or three houses and that's your retirement. That's it. You're done. I was like, do you know what? That's a good idea. He's like, you should do it. I was like, all right, when I get back, I'll do it. Anyway, it gets back to January. I don't do it. And whatever the date was in January, boom, it drops. And there's like a 30% dip, I think. I can't remember exactly. I was like, well, I'll wait for the bounce and I'll do it. And the bounce never comes. And it just slowly, slowly goes all the way this down. This is the story of everybody in Bitcoin. Yeah, I know. And I like it. Do, do you know how many people told I, I was talking to people when Bitcoin was at 60? And they're like, ah, you know, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for better prices. I'm going to sell. I'm going to sell. And uh, they waited until Bitcoin was at better prices 20K better prices for me <laughs> to buy it from <laughs> but you know what the, the, this is the point now this is why i don't care about price so much because what i've done in my head is i spent the money in my head that money now enables this i can do xyz i don't do that anymore i have an income this podcast i have an income and that pays for my mortgage and my kids go on holiday and you know do my shopping and you know very occasionally when i want to do something a little bit different like get my dad a car sold a little bit of bitcoin do, do you remember the dogecoin millionaire Oh, man. Yeah. So he just did a video called I Regret Everything. Yeah, I bet he does. And uh, he talks about it. He's like, you know, if I did it again, you know, like he talks about his commitment to the community and a commitment to it going to a dollar. And, you know, first of all, I like have critiques of this ideology of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hodl till it goes to a dollar. Like Dogecoin's a shit coin. It has no use. Stop. Tim Pool, stop talking about it as a like 
dollar alternative and Bitcoin is a Is that savings. what Tim Pool's talking about? He's, he, when, when Doge was rising, Tim Pool was saying that Doge was going to be the, the daily transactional currency and Bitcoin would be the savings. And I was like, you know, I, I, I heard that from him. I started hearing that like rhetoric from others. And like the Dogecoin millionaire, he was, you know, on a similar boat. And people are talking about Doge to a million or to, Doge to a dollar. And it's it's interesting to me because you know if everyone's waiting for Doge to a dollar, I'll just ask you what happens at a dollar. Well, it's already it's not reached it. Well, let's say it hits a dollar. What happens then? Everyone sells. Everyone sells. Everyone knows we're going Doge to a dollar. It's like an orchestrated pump. Should probably so, sell at seventy cents. Yeah, exactly. When Doge hits seventy cents, you're like, well, everyone else is going to sell at a dollar. I'll front run that. Like I'll buy it back at thirty cents. You know, whatever. But you know, he he held it. And he felt like it was a responsibility of his. And he talks about, he's like, well, if I did it again, I'd probably sell a million and hold on to two. And, you know, he'd have a million dollars cash. He'd probably put it back into Doge, but he'd have a lot more Doge now. Um, but, but, like, I think people don't realize that that is an option, that you can take some off the table. And it's okay to do things like buy a house or buy a car, buy the things that you need. Like, live your fucking life. Stop being in purgatory. I, like, this, the purgatorial idea that I get with, like, Bitcoiners, like, they're sitting in Clubhouse, they're sitting in other places, they're looking at content. They're fucking in purgatory, waiting for the price to go up. And I don't know, the, the problem with that is that you never know, you don't have a number in your head as to, like, when it's okay to, like, walk into heaven. But that's why don't don't ever have a number anymore. I'm with, I'm with you. The Bitcoin I have sits there, and very occasionally I dip into it. And you know, when but I you need it, no, I don't need it. <laughs> I, no, there are things I want in it's, Bitcoin will only ever be for things I want in life or a rainy day fund. Okay. Say, say this goes to shit, I get canceled, whatever. Okay, I'm gonna have to make some tough decisions in life. What's the new career? But hopefully that doesn't happen. Therefore, it's only ever there for the wants. My needs are covered by my my salary, my mortgage, my holidays, my kids' needs. That's all covered, right? But there are times when I want something. Like I wanted to get my dad a car. So I sold some Bitcoin and bought my dad a car. Nice. I Next summer I might go, do you know what? I want to take my kids on a safari, holiday of a lifetime. I can't afford it with my salary. I'll sell a bit of Bitcoin. Well, well no, notably, like when did you, like you, you sold the Bitcoin? How much was Bitcoin when you sold it? Which went for my dad's car. For your dad's car. Uh, that was a decent price, wasn't it? If you yeah. think historically now. I mean, it, what's interesting to me is that like for every story of like a Rasa where he he sold Bitcoin to buy a car, and that car now would be like $2 billion or something like that. Well, so I sold half a Bitcoin to buy my son a car, and that car was 20,000 pound. There's equally- So whatever 40,000 pound was, I sold half a Bitcoin. And for my dad, it wasn't long before there. So both of those near high prices. So, so there's an equal number of stories of people who bought Bitcoin and sold at higher prices when they bought their car, and now that car would have, you know, that they've made money on that, right? That car's a store of value. Yeah. It's like, and they can buy the Bitcoin back. But you know, the point it's, being, it's, it's very interesting to me that these that these things happen. Like Bitcoin, you, you, this is why I advocate like people living their lives and like taking a little off the table, like as things go up, just just like put it into sorry fiat alternatives. You know, put it into the total stock market. I'm a strong believer that like as the economy of Bitcoin develops, we're going to see more and more Bitcoin companies do things like enter. The stock market enter like the traditional financial markets. Fidelity will soon expose itself to Bitcoin. Vanguard will have Bitcoin exposure. All of these companies will have Bitcoin exposure. I think Vanguard's not a public company, but like Fidelity, I don't think they are either. But a lot of these, a lot of these companies will have Bitcoin exposure. Whether it's MSTR, whether it's Tesla, 
whether it's whatever company it is, but Walmart, I don't know. So as that happens, like Bitcoin starts to get integrated into sort of the global economy very naturally and starts to reflect in like market returns. And I, I, I can't wait for that day. I think that's a really amazing day to come. But I, I just do, it, to me, it's like a very slow process. And I think that's probably where like Bitcoin will go is like very integrated into the economy every day. And that's probably also where like Bitcoin sort of levels out and flattens and stops with this like ridiculous volatility. Well, that would be a good day, I think. Wouldn't it? I, I actually, I actually, well, because when you, like I said, I went to that point where I don't really care about price too much anymore. I don't want my Bitcoin to you know, capitulate and be worth nothing, but you know, I'm happy where I'm at. I don't think you have, I think, I think you're at this place, and I'm, I'm certainly, like, that's an, I think we both don't think that's a possibility, that it'd be worth yeah, nothing. But what I mean is, is like, now I care about the use case of Bitcoin, and a more stable Bitcoin makes it become more usable for people around the world, the people you talked about who yeah. need it. And for me, if we get, the closer we get to that point, the better. Sadly, I don't think we will be there. I'm just wondering what is the next bull cycle crazy shit that's going to I think, I, do, I think I think they've geared it right up. I think Metaverse is probably coming. I think this this the next metaverse cycle collapse. Of, uh, metaverse obsession. Like the metaverse doesn't exist. Oh, it doesn't exist. They're going to try though. They're going to push it. And like, I mean, like I think it. I was reading. I don't know how true this is, but I was reading on uh, one of on the on Reddit our Ethereum, and uh, they were saying that that I guess Polygon has been included in some like Disney program. Uh, was that not was that not a troll? It, it might be a troll. I wouldn't be surprised. Are you, are you on about that? It was like some kind of accelerator program. Yeah, that was that was the claim. It might be a troll. It might I be a complete lie. I thought that was might a be, joke. Might be a complete joke. Might be a complete lie. But like that's the sort of thing we're going to start seeing in the next cycle. Is like this metaverse application. All the metaverse applications going nuts. I, mean, I don't even understand how, what, it, what it would mean to have Polygon in like an accelerator program, right? Like, it doesn't make sense. A lot of people are reporting on it. I don't know if it's true. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I assumed it was a joke. I I don't know what it means. Like, who's in the like Polygon is a decentralized like product, right? Or mm-hmm. do they have a specific team? Is it a company? You gotta pull up. Look at that. Uh, Matic surges as Disney choose Polygon for accelerator program. The Ethereum scaling tool of one of six companies selected by the media and entertainment giant to be part of its program to develop AR, NFT, and AI experiences. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it sounds real, though. Well, it's on Coindesk. No, you know. Must be real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but but that's, that's, that to me is coming. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that just kind of gets, it seems like they're queuing that up. They're putting the little ball on the tee and getting ready to like drive that. That'll be as dumb as every other one. It'll involve a combination of every scam we've seen before in the space. It, you know, this is like a stew. Every single time we pump, you know, the witches get there and they, they brew the next one. They just add another thing to it. So, like, this will be, they'll add Metaverse to the previous scams. It'll be it'll be an ICO plus NFT. NFT plus, you know, Metaverse plus, you know, whatever fucking scams have come before. <laughs> and it's just... It's it's a little enervating, but it's also very funny to me because you know as well as I do that this next cycle is going to be filled with people that come in, tell us that we're stupid, that we don't see the innovation. We're not open-minded. We're not open-minded. They're the ones that see the innovation. We're boomers. We're boomers. Even though, which, which is always ironic because I'll be accused every time these pump of not being the one to see the innovation. Meanwhile, I'm like, you guys made fun of me when I was playing with Bitcoin early on. Like you guys miss the innovation. These are not the people that come later to these pumps. They are not the innovators. They are not the people that saw 
innovation early on in this space. That's and it. that that's super interesting to me. Like, let's go to art bars and yeah, hang, yeah. hang out with them. Gladly, yeah. they, they, they're interesting people. Uh, there's uh, the artists. The, the artists that showed up to the space really was to me very interesting. I find it hard to criticize them, even though I criticize the technology. Uh, when an artist comes along and, and, and somehow is able to forge a career and actually be able to create more art, I'm kind yeah, of like, well, okay, so, fuck so it, go on. Now. What's What's funny is uh, I, I don't mind that. I don't mind when they. Like NFTs for me were interesting because to me it was just like literally prestige. That's what people were buying. I get it. Fine. Um, Damien Hurst seemed to know that right away. Damien Hurst, I think, made a lot of money playing the game, doing what Damien Hurst does, and uh, knowing that these are essentially worthless receipts. Other artists, I think, made some money and anticipated that the NFT revolution was going to be something that would carry them on into the future, not in the, not the pump and dump cycle that it was. I think the people that come out best from the NFTs are people like Gary Vaynerchuk. They're not artists. They're not interesting. And they saw it exactly for what it was. And they got here and they did it with all the irony. And they understood that this was a short-lived, very quick cash grab. Those fucking drawings he was selling. Yeah. <laughs> Try the find squigglies. Some, find his drawings. No, yeah, no, we got to talk about that. Show them, show them. They're so okay, funny. Listen, I, uh, you, you probably don't know I collect uh, sneakers. We call them trainers. Oh, uh, yeah. I collect them. Like me. rare pairs. I've got like 200. Rare pepes? Rare pairs. Oh. I've got like, I've got, I've got Dunk Londons where there's only like 200. Dunk Londons? Dude, these... <laughs> These trainers, they only made 202 of them. I bought them like 15 years ago. Uh, but I, 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 but it's, and it's almost like an addiction buying them. There's a lot of Bitcoiners that collect sneakers. Yeah. I've, I've learned this but, in this space. But fundamentally, I know I can wear them, but I don't wear them because that destroys the value. So fundamentally, what's the difference between that and, and an NFT? No, there, there, there isn't. This yeah. is what I've always said. Collectibles are not scams. Collectibles are collectibles. Yeah. And if you want to collect receipts, you know, the thing about collectibles is they have their time in the sun. I've seen this numerous times. Uh, this is why I think the, the tulip bubble is the most uninteresting bubble to compare anything else after it to. Because the tulip bubble fundamentally is a collectibles bubble. It's not an economics bubble. Fundamentally, it was about like getting collecting individual like types of tulips, right? The um, Augustus Semper, for example. Um, and I don't even know if there's enough evidence that it even existed, but like that was fundamentally what the tulip bubble was about was collecting. So it was a collector's bubble if it existed. I don't think that, that you get any economic lessons from collecting prestige items. I don't think there's anything there. Maybe there's a solution to why markets like bubble and don't, you know, and collapse maybe, but there's no information there. So when the NFT stuff happened, I was like that, you know, whatever. There's nothing different between my beanie baby collection your sneaker collection. Have you got a Beanie Baby collection? Oh, fuck yeah. Financial, go look it up in the Financial Times. You can bring it up. You've, <laughs> you've actually got it? Yeah. Yeah, I got a nice, nice Beanie Baby collection. John Seth Financial Times? Uh, beanie Babies? Probably just Financial Times Beanie Babies. It's not like they read uh, about them do often. They, do they still have value? <laughs> do people still collect them? To me? No, do people still collect them? Yeah, people do. There's a very small community of us. Do you have any particularly rare ones that are highly valuable? I have them all. Uh, you have them all. I, I mean, I have all the rare ones. I have Humphrey the Camel, <laughs> Peanut, the, Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, Digger the Orange Crab, Lizzie the Tie Dye Lizard, uh, Steg. Uh, is this the, is this the Gary V stuff? I've got no idea about this. What's that? That that looks very Gary V ish. Uh, they might have been dumber than that. Those look too too well drawn. This is called Gary V drawings. Yeah. So that's essentially twelve thousand dollars. Yeah. Look at that fucking, is that, what is that? Is that cows? Well, and it's probably been listed there since ETH was like 3K. 
but but people buy these, yeah. Yeah, G- Gary V literally listed these things. Crazy. And I think these are the Gary. These look very Gary V-ish. Some of them look very complicated. They look like drawings either a child does or somebody on drugs. Uh, yeah, Gary V. <laughs> <laughs> we had him on the show once. Did you? Twice. Twice. Yeah. I uh I knew him a, a number. Like he used to go to a lot of the conferences I was at. And this is before he was like really famous. Like he was doing like the wine show back then. Yeah, yeah. The wine show was cool. Yeah, it was great. Fair play to him. He's he's turned into like a Tony Robbins ish type yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird to know that that guy. Turned do into not that. give your kids pocket money. They will never learn the value of money. Are you trying to do an impression? You just sound like an English guy. Well, I am an English. Guy. <laughs> I'm doing the English. There you go. That's uh, that's a lot of my beanies right there. Oh my god. Yeah, that's Rex Bronte Steg uh, Waddle. You know, so like, how many do you have? Oh, many more than that. Um, you know, a lot of these are not the are not necessarily rare. Like, I buy them in lots, and I get about ten emails a day, five to ten emails a day. People asking me to help value their collections, of which I rarely see anything valuable. It's very interesting. I like the last line in this article. Josh is now a collector of Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> a little denigrated. Um, but yeah, this is. I mean, it's it's interesting to me because, like, yeah, there's. I don't think there's anything wrong with collecting. I think that NFTs were fine. I think that collecting in general is just a kind of interesting, interesting thing to do. And generally, when collectibles have their time in the sun, you're just buying prestige, right? I remember when Bitcoin, uh, or not Bitcoin, when Beanie Babies. To me, they're the same. Uh, when Beanie Babies were being collected by people, people would go. And they would say things like, you know, I, I have Humphrey the Camel. It's an early, like, 1993, like, one of the, the original, you know, one of the, one of the first few sets. And this thing that's worth, you know, $800 today, by the time you're in college, it'll probably pay for your college. And I remember people saying that, like, very seriously. And for me, the reason I collect them is as this, like, very important reminder to myself that none of this shit is valuable. None of it. Nothing's valuable. Prestige is temporary. When the NFT stuff happened, I watched it and I was like, this is temporary. It has to be because this is just a prestige buy. Well, I hope it isn't with sneakers. I actually have no one to share that. The, the sneakers? Yeah, because I don't know anyone else who collects them. I don't well, I, I, here's how you can know whether something's a prestige buy. The people that are making the product, are they taking an exchange for the production of the product money or are they taking the product, the, the past like production of the product in exchange? Like, I don't understand the question. Sorry. Can I buy a Beanie Baby with another Beanie Baby? Or do you want money for it? If the company wants money, then it's very likely that they think that the money is more valuable than the Beanie Baby. Well, but this is, we're talking about Nike. Yes, Nike wants money. Yeah, but they're not going to, they, they don't want, they don't want the sneakers. Of course not. But that, that's what I'm saying is like, if it's like sneakers collectability, like they have, like they make literal collectible sneakers, right? The yeah. People at Nike are probably collecting those. Ty Warner didn't want more Beanie Babies. He wasn't like, give me, look, I mean, I, Beanie Babies are inherently valuable. I'm Ty Warner. Give me all of the Humphrey Camels in the world, and I'm going to pay for every kid's college in the future. No, he was like, give me the cash. It's $6. I'll take it, please. I, I think for Nike, there's a couple of things going on here. Firstly, they've realized that by re- releasing something that's rare, there's a demand. But they don't tend to release things. You still, if, you, if you're a first-round buyer, you're still paying $100, $150 a pair. Yeah. They're not releasing rare ones and charging thousands of dollars, right? No. So, but for them, there's a brand thing going well, on. But also there's collectibles. Like, there's people that are wanting those yeah. things. I mean, the same thing with, like, Lamborghini. Like, if you look at the Lamborghini profits, like, look at the Lamborghini profits. That, that's the most astounding thing about Lamborghini. If you want a car, if you want to get the most car for your money, buy a Lambo. And you can know that because you can look at their profits. 
they make like $5 million a year. It's, it's like astoundingly low. <laughs> they give you, they give you a car that is worth the car. It's probably $150,000 car. It's probably got $135,000 worth of tech in it. You know, should maybe one should get a Lambo. Yeah. <laughs> but like, that's, that's the thing. Like these, uh, collectibles are collectibles. Like they are you know, like a beanie baby. I'm, I'm buying like a collectible thing. If I, if I go to, if I go to, Ty Warner, he's not going to buy all the Humphreys back. He's going to keep his money and he's yeah. going to like run his four seasons hotels in Chicago. Yeah. He wants cash. And that's the thing with the NFTs is like CryptoPunks wasn't taking like past CryptoPunks for CryptoPunks. They were taking money. They wanted your ETH. Cool. They found the ETH more valuable than the CryptoPunks. They were giving up the CryptoPunks, their dumb drawings but doesn't every in exchange. Art, but even, isn't that the case for every artist? Every artist wants the money for the art they're creating. Well, eventually when artists become, it, it, there's there's a, a purpose to that initially, right? Like the artists, for example, will take the cash for the money. Um, most artists don't become like very, like incredibly wealthy in their own lifetime. That might most be, don't become even moderately comfortable. Yes, very few. Maybe Jeff Koontz might be a good example. Hearst is another good example, Damien Hearst. Um, but artists, like they sell early because they have people that want their art, you know, they're selling to get them on the walls. Maybe they catch the eye of a really big collector. Like they're playing their own game, but later on in the career of an artist, yeah, the art qua the art becomes like, sort of like if, if you were to say like, Hey, Damien, look, I have this piece. It, it's honestly, it's like your first piece, but I prefer this new piece that you just made. Can I exchange it? He'd probably be like, yeah, Absolutely. I'll take that piece in exchange. Yeah, but but there are people who own sneakers who will trade for sneakers. Yes, but, that, but what I'm saying is that collect, collectibles, like individual collectors, might trade for like things. Like there are people I find I find Beanie Babies very interesting. I will trade among like other collectors of Beanie Babies for Beanie Babies. Okay, but my, my point is like the company that's making them, Ty Warner, they're not gonna. They want cash. They they want the money. They're trying to give like they're they're kind of like the Federal Reserve of Beanie Babies, <laughs> and this idea that like these collectibles are going to go to a million or that they're going to be like collectible for more than like you know every every beanie, every collector's item has its fifteen minutes of fame essentially. Well, so so this is why I'm okay with the sneakers then because we're like twenty years in now. Yeah, and they're going up. Get, get them, get up StockX. I want to show you some of. <laughs> I'd those. love to, but but sneakers are a little different because like again like when when a lot what happens with collectibles is they they happen. And then there's like this like later on cycle where people who like are a bit nostalgic about it will come back to them. Um, Seekers actually have some utility as well, which is a little different than other collectibles. But yeah, but the utility destroys the value. Yes, of course. But uh, but yeah, like I think that like sneakers, other things, like they have this nostalgic thing. And sometimes like a, a market actually, you know, shows up around it. And there's <laughs> enough people that have nostalgia. You've literally done the search it. I was going to tell you to wow! do, didn't you? You've done the dunk search. So I tell you, if, so the ones I most want are those third ones, the pigeons. Staple. Look at that. Yeah. Is that Australian dollars? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you could afford that. No. <laughs> so I tell you, that was interesting. So they only made 150 pairs of those. And really? the, yeah, they were released at this store in Brooklyn. The day they came out, there was a literal riot. And I remember them going up on eBay afterwards. And you could get a pair for about four or five thousand dollars. I was like, fuck that. I'm not paying. I wish that. you did. Yeah, of course. Look at it now. What's that? What's seventy-one thousand? I'm gonna get it up in all eight US dollars. This is, this is the yeah. thing. This is the thing, Peter. Like, there's enough people collecting sneakers, enough people doing it, that like it actually like can maintain a value. There's there's a lot of people doing that. Beanies, there's like three hundred of us, maybe. You know, but sneakers, there's thousands of people who like continually wanting want to collect. Here you go. Yeah, so Forty-eight thousand dollars. I think, and, and also I think fashion is very different. Like ah. sneakers are fashion. Yeah. Right. Purses are fashion. It's not like it's not like the Hermes purse 
the Birkin bag has like uh, disappeared from the market. So those Dunk Londons I've got, I bought them on the uh, initial release. The, the top upper left? No, middle left, yeah, the, the blue one. Oh, the 24K ones? Yeah, I bought them for 120 pounds. 120, oh, well. 120 you pounds. You like showed up and they... No, no, I bought them online. They were meant to be released, but... Um, but I'm a, I'm like addicted to I've got those Zoo Yorks. I'm yeah. addicted to buying these. Well, I think sneakers have a long a long time in them. And and by the way, all you're doing is uh, inventorying them for like Jay Z, who's eventually going to buy them and wear them. He can buy the whole set. <laughs> well, my sons, my sons, like they're going to be mine one day, aren't they? And I'm like, yeah, they. Can I'm going to I'm going to put them on my feet. I'm like, okay, I'm no. like, you can't fucking wear them. No, but I think fashion's fundamentally different than like most collector stuff yeah. because like fashion has you know for, you know like I said the Hermes Birkin bag. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the same fervor around it. Like, I don't know that, I don't know that sneakers have the same fervor that Beanie Babies did. I, I, were you, do you remember Beanies? No, I, I remember, but there was a real hype cycle on that. Yes. Yeah. The, it, it, like these collector's items are like marked by this hype cycle. But I think the difference is people felt a need to get Beanie Babies, even though they weren't into it because they yes. thought it was, it's, they're like w- shit Women coins. were punching each other in Macy's to <laughs> but, get Beanie Baby. Like they wanted, I want Spooky spooky the ghost with the curved mouth instead of the pointy mouth because I don't have it yet. And so like they buy like 16, like these, these collections people are sending me, Peter, they have like 32 Princess Beanie Babies or 100 yeah, like, Peace Beanies. Did they buy these purely because they thought they were going to make money? And yes. they're like, oh, yeah. So well, why do you buy 100? Why do you buy 100 Garcias? You know, why do you buy 100 Peace Beanies? Why would you buy a hundred of them but i'm not buying these because i think i'm gonna make money i don't go get them and go fuck that and in 10 years i'll be worth six thousand dollars you buy them because you like them i like the yes. collection i'm i'm, I'm glad of the, i'm it, thinking about the display but that, that's the same as art collecting right like, yeah again to, to your point about art there's never like like no there's not going to ever be a fervor over damien hurst however when damien hurst is an nft and he's selling lots of shit for 50 bucks originals there might be a fervor, right? So, like, I actually, I actually, for Damien Hurst, has he actually done that? Yeah, yeah, because I find that a bit gross. I'm yeah, just, uh, that to me devalues other Damien Hurst work. But hasn't all his art? He's a billionaire. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> but this, but yeah, yeah, like to me, like the fervor, the fervor around something, it's very unique. Collectors, collectibles for me are very like obvious when they come about. I see them and I think to myself like, oh, it's a collectible. Like this yeah. market will last X number of, and I always hear the same things in collectible markets. People declare that like this collectible market's different than other collectible markets. This collectible market's going to pay for my kid's college. This collectible market is X. This collectible market is Y. And it's always the exact same. And meanwhile, every collectible market that I've ever seen in my entire life, every single one collapses. And you have a couple of things that remain valuable to like the nostalgic collectors and everything else goes to $5. So what's the lesson, Jinseth? Buy it money NFTs. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think the lesson is that, uh, that your shit doesn't matter. Um, value is the only commodity that matters. Bitcoin is not a collectible, right? I don't think. And, uh, and you, should, you should be very wary of attaching yourself to things. Um, the DeFi stuff, I think, I think you should be very wary of attaching yourself to high returns. Uh, I think that you should accept that you don't deserve the money or the, the, the wealth that you have. I think that you don't deserve that. Uh, and, and very thankful if you happen to be lucky enough to be wealthy or to have even your basic needs taken care of. 
Good finish, man. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a wrap for Miami with Dungeon Seth. Great way to finish off, man. Nice. Always Love appreciate to be here. You. I'm glad you're in my neck of the woods. I hope that you guys come back someday. We will come back. We will come back many times and we'll always see you and always talk to you. Good. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, love you, dude. Sing us out, Seth. Love you guys. Oh, sing us out, bro. All right. I think we're doing a Christmas song, right? Or are we doing something else? <laughs> we do some no, Justin we, Timberlake. We got a Christmas song locked. What's that? We do oh. some Justin Timberlake. Oh, I don't know. I don't know any Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I sing some. We do a little, little uh, Backstreet Boys. Weren't they? They're playing. As long as you love them. Dude, we're going to New York tomorrow, and they're playing in New York. <laughs> we're not going Je- to watch Jeremy. Really? really? Jeremy really wants to go. Dude, as long <laughs> as you love me, by the Backstreet. That's that's the only like pop song I remember. <laughs> Jeremy's like, can we go, please? He wants to get a T-shirt and everything. Oh, really? Backstage pass. Backstage pass. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to do it. I can't. I can't even believe they still exist as a band. They probably look like shit. Not as bad. Well, Hanson's a band. You know Hanson? Yeah. Isn't it weird? Isn't it strange? How we all feel a little bit weird sometimes. That's all I remember of Hanson. Hanson. All right, we're out of whiskey. We gotta finish. All right, bro. Good night. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with my boy, Jun Seth. As ever, he brought the fire and a little bit of controversy, but he always does. That's why I love getting Jun Seth back on the show. Now, listen, he is an old school Bitcoiner and he sits out of the normal Bitcoin bubble, but he always has a lot of interesting things to add. Makes me think about things. So I will be getting him back on the show regularly. Okay, any questions about the show, do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, keep your fingers crossed for Railbed for this weekend. We're going to be away. Again, we're away at Burton Park Wanderers. Another three points. We want to hold our position at the top of the league. You want to find out more about that, please head over to railbedford.com or follow us at railbedford on Twitter. All right, have a great week, and I will see you all soon.